Welcome back to The Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's beautiful episode is with my new friend, Cameron George. I learned about Cameron through my friend Ben Greenfield, who's been on here a handful of times, uh, listening to him on his podcast and just going an absolute deep dive into the pharmacological effects of psychotropic medicines, psychedelics, things of the sort, hallucinogens, and also a very interesting plant or plant root referred to as kava. I discovered kava about 15 years ago or so in Hawaii and uh, i really value this stuff it is a fantastic way to boost mental clarity while also increasing relaxation it's a great replacement for drinking alcohol it produces like a euphoric type effect which is very pleasant and i've always been curious what exactly it is within the plant that causes the effects and also just what is it within lots of plants that cause effects particularly in the psychotropic hallucinogenic realm so this conversation with cameron who he is absolutely, I would say, the world's leading expert on this topic, particularly around kava. And this conversation is essentially a masterclass on the pharmacological effects of psychotropic medicines or plants or plant medicines, uh, as well as the effects of kava. I've been interested in this stuff for a very long time, and I'm very excited to get to share the ins and outs of these plants with you in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I want to thank you guys for leaving us reviews on wherever you're listening to this. I'm going to read a review from this is EG Wellness on Apple Podcasts. EG Wellness says, a health resource for days. As a manual therapist and personal trainer, I use this podcast as the main resource when dealing with my clients and in my personal quest to become more aligned. No matter what type of diet, fitness, or mindfulness practice, you can find it all on this podcast. Aaron is the freaking man. Thank you very much, EG Wellness, for the kind message. I really enjoy reading all the reviews, and there's a good chance I will read them on here. It takes about 26 seconds. Scroll down on your phone, subscribe so you get the episodes each week drop us a five-star review if you think it deserves it and appreciate y'all very much let's get to it with my guy cameron george what a cool thing you're in business with your dad or is he just helping out no no no, he is he's he's been with me since the beginning i got in this being really sick and so whenever i got really sick i ended up having to i was totally dependent i had to move back in with my family you know so they've just been great i mean they're about as supportive as it gets you know and so they just kind of they went through the transformation with me as far as like from just being sort of a, of a standard mentality, uh, you know, standard American mentality towards diet and lifestyle and different things. And, yeah. and, uh, as I grew and moved into the world of functional medicine and health and wellness, they grew too. And so it was just kind of a natural thing. We were all into it once I started it. So, so I wanted to start with kind of perhaps a bit of an outlandish question. I wanted to discuss, we're going to talk about Kava, obviously, but something that I'm very much enamored with is mm-hmm. the potential evolutionary and adaptive benefit of ingesting psychoactive substances, <laughs> such as psilocybins or such as... Yep. I mean, I, I wonder, at, at what point does something become psychoactive? What kind of tryptamines or what, is, what does a substance need to have to be put in that category <laughs> it, first? Yeah. And then the actual question question is, what is the psychedelic experience from a, a, a neurochemical yeah. perspective. Mm-hmm. So interesting, even, you know, having, you know, the question framed like that, because it's, uh, 
it's interesting how we label and categorize things, especially experiences, right? Because everything in life, reality really kind of occurs on a spectrum, you know? Mm. And I think that, you know, a lot of us today, especially who, you know, most of us obviously just living in modern culture, mostly in artificial environments and sort of divorced from nature to some degree. A lot of us, you know, our, our senses have been somewhat atrophied or we've, div- we've, we've taken enough steps away from our natural ecology and way of living that uh, we have parts of our neurochemistry and our senses that have kind of numbed a little bit. And I think that once we kind of realign ourselves with natural principles and start to kind of resensitize ourselves and integrate ourselves, uh, you, know, you know, both with, with food and with environment and lifestyle and relationships and stuff, we'll actually notice that a lot more types of environmental stimulus are psychoactive than we really realize. In fact, like many, many things are psychoactive, including things that we ingest on a subtle level, right? Yeah. So like... Even a lot of like the herbs that we think of that we get at the health food store today, and you know, a lot of those are cut down to a really subtle form, but there's a lot of herbs if we just were able to prepare them traditionally like indigenous people did that are actually you know, a lot more psychoactive than we realize, right? Even some of the adaptogenic herbs. You know, you know, the Chinese wrote about things like reishi mushroom on affecting the mind and the spirit, and they kind of had a connection and a sensitivity and a way of working with that, that medicine in its most potent form. And I think we'll realize that there's a lot of substances that are pseudo-psychoactive, right? But then I think what we consider psychoactive is something that has a level of alteration of our sort of baseline state of consciousness that it's so overtly noticeable to even someone who's not sensitive, right? That like we say, okay, that brings us out of the normal neurochemical state of like alert problem-solving consciousness far enough outside of that to where we consider it an altered state, right? Like even though there are actually things that do that on a really subtle level, for example, coffee, right? You know, Michael Pollan wrote, I mean, he's written, you know, he's written multiple books on, uh, you know, plant medicines, plant food and stuff like that. And he was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, I think think it was about a year ago, talking about coffee. And he made a, a really, really articulate argument for how coffee helped to sort of, you know, shape the collective mind of, of modern culture in the early 1900s and how it really helped to facilitate this sort of alert, problem-solving state of consciousness that it's very fast-paced and it's almost kind of left brain and very executive. And that was actually done, you know, partly through industry introducing, you know, the, the advent of coffee breaks, right? Just, you know, you're getting people in this state of consciousness in, in large numbers right. so that they would, they would be a better you know, you know, producer for obviously their company. Obviously, they could work longer hours and they could stay focused and things like that. And I think anyone who's ever say like gotten on coffee, off coffee, been separated from it or on it, especially if you've been on it for years and you try to go off it, you do realize that it does elicit more of an altered state than a lot of people realize, right? Even though it doesn't take you like visually into a different space, like a heavy psychedelic or something, right? Mm. But it certainly is a a cognitive you know stimulant that brings about a certain state of consciousness, right? <laughs> Yeah. It's more alert, problem solving. Maybe for a lot of people may take you a little bit out of that, that creative introspective space because it kind of is sympathetic in nature. It stimulates sort of like the beta state of mind instead of like this sort of calm centered That's such state an of mind. interesting idea when you think of the way that the, the substances that get titrated into a titrated being like a chemistry for like drops, like dripped into culture yeah. informs the structural expression of how we, we form yeah. as, as a government and as a people and as personalities and mm-hmm. our interest, our interests and our sleeping patterns and our waking patterns. As, as you're saying, it's like, imagine it's like, it's like 
forming the culture to become more like i don't know like hummingbirds or rabbits yeah as opposed to like owls as yeah, opposed yeah. to bears as opposed to all these different mindsets based off of the substances that are dripped into the culture yeah what a trip it is it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy yeah have you seen the have you seen the, the spiders how they how they form webs based off of different substances oh yes yeah, yeah. like lsd uh, or coffee or absolutely, whatever yeah coffee is just chaos yeah exactly yeah there's there's a <laughs> There's a biological manifestation for everything that happens through through consciousness, right? Through perspective, mentality. Obviously, everything starts with mindset. And anyone who's ever changed or transformed their life knows that, right? The body follows the mind. The actions follow the body, you know? And then, obviously, your environment and your reality is going to follow your actions and actually how you execute yourself in, in everyday life, right? And whenever you have that occurring on a mass scale, obviously, the quality of our state of consciousness or you know, the, the state that we're elicited into, right, via all of the stimulus, not just the substances, but the substances are powerful because they can cause quicker shifts than all of the collective subtleties of our behavior and the things we surround ourselves with. People as well too, you know, the people that we put into our lives and their energetic fingerprint or what they're resonating at as far as a mentality feeds into our collective mentality too and affects and shapes the way that we view ourselves in the world around us which then changes our actions which then changes our environment right you used an interesting term previous that i haven't i don't think heard in this context of, of a resensitization to mm -hmm. reality right what, is, what do you mean by that if you've ever spent time uh you know around say like if, if you ever traveled to like any type of indigenous context right if you've been say like to you know somewhere in the south pacific or you've been around people that are very closely integrated to what their ancestors, you know, the way of life that their ancestors were living that's usually much closely, much more closely aligned and integrated with their natural ecology and with each other. Yeah. You know, usually their senses, their, their, their mental fabric is different, right? Usually they have a higher sensitivity to stimulus in their environment and they have a sense of their environment a, a lot that's that's a lot more prominent say than the average person that you would just find that's living so, sort of in more of an artificial environment say like in modern american culture which you know some of that is starting to to change you know as far as like understanding the importance of like nature reintegration or uh you know kind of getting getting you know circling back to an ancestral way of living but for all intents and purposes if you just take like the average not just american but just person living in modern culture that's say living totally in an artificial environment cut off say from grounding is wearing you know you know rubber on their feet all the time that's never out in the elements that's never getting any of the energetic or biochemical signals from the collective intelligence of the ecology right which is constantly communicating with our biology and whenever we start to put ourselves in sort of like these little casts and these little sort of like cells that we create right these boxes right that sort of like shield us off from all of the signals the biochemical signals and the energetic signals that we're breathing and being exposed to if we're just out immersed in nature we'll find that over time that affects our nervous system's ability to be able to to sense the collective stimulus of the environment and so we start to kind of atrophy our senses start to kind of atrophy and we we just start to become more sort of like shaped and pressed you know our mentalities start to become shaped and pressed into more of this sort of mundane sort of reductionist perspective of reality where you're just kind of like this thing in this meat suit that's going through these motions and you just kind of look outside your window and you kind of see nature but you're seeing it from almost like the cell and you're like yeah those are just trees out there and you you, you kind of just lose your sense of like feeling part of the whole and being having a sense of you know you know your community to like say like 
you know, the natural ecology where you came from. Yeah. And, and, you know, psychoactive substances, most of which either originate from nature, even if they're in a synthetic derivative form, you know, or get, I mean, all of those, you know, psychoactive substances are just, they're, they're, they're living organisms that are extensions of that collective intelligence of the natural ecology that have, have developed, you know, chemistry that's cross compatible from a communication standpoint with other organisms, which are us. And so these are, these are, you know, messages and signals that are, that are more prominently embedded into their structure. When we take them into our body, it transfers certain characteristics, adaptable characteristics that they've developed in their environment to us. And that's, that's one of actually, you know, the prominent, you know, theories behind the manifestation of, say, like psychedelic medicines is, is that these are organisms either from the fungal kingdom, the plant kingdom, or the animal kingdom in the case of like Bufo that have been shaped by the ecology um, and offer an opportunity to bridge a communication gap between the substrate intelligence of the ecology and reality and the sort of, and, and us, which are just like the apples on the tree where an extension or like a, a brain cell in the neural network of that system, right? And we've sort of been cut off almost like a senescent cell is, can, you know, becomes cut off, you know, from a, from a, a signaling standpoint from the collective intelligence of the body that synchronizes and keeps the whole thing in harmony, right? And that's, that's a huge prominent theory, you know, by a lot of experts in the psychedelic community is like that these, uh, these, these substances that expand uh, across, you know, this whole sort of spectrum of psychoactivity have different applications, but, you know, many offer, offer opportunity to reconnect much quicker and sort of rebridge that communication gap and resensitize our systems to the entire collective subset of, you know, messages much more quickly so are in, in that analogy it, would that be suggesting that an individual that feels cut off from say say nature or from maybe like their higher sense of purpose or value in the world or relationships or community and maybe feels addicted to some type of say amphetamine scenario or addicted to maybe validation or power or, you know money whatever the thing is was the analogy that that consciousness from like the, the hive, like the totality of, of, of the culture, that individual consciousness almost could be related to like a senescent cell? Correct. Is that what you're saying? Right. You know, under that theory, yes, because... That's very interesting. Right. It's, it's kind of like this, this old... And um, what is a, a senescent cell? It's like a cell So a senescent dying. cell is like a zombie cell, basically a cell that has lost its communication capacity with the, 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 the collective intelligence that governs the entire orchestra of cells in the body, right? That's very So if, if you look at the cells in the human body or the, the sort of litany of active living constituents outside of cells as well too, as sort of like the instruments in a musical orchestra that are all playing in sync, and there's sort of a collective energy and intelligence, like you don't have to tell your heart to beat, you don't have to tell yourself to breathe, right? You don't have to tell that cut on your arm to heal. You don't have to, that, you, none of that is happening. You're this fantastic sort of extension of this collective intelligence that's undeniable, right? We can't even like, you know, dispute the fact that it exists because like cut your arm and see if it heals, right? And under any set of normal circumstances, it will. And so, you know, senescent cells are cells that have lost their, their sense communication capacity to that collective intelligence that governs the symphony, you know, that governs the symphony. It's almost like, an instrument, you know, it's, it's like a player of an instrument that sort of lost his sync and lost his place that doesn't have the music in front of him anymore. And so he's sort of over here trying to do his own thing and then he goes astray and then, you know, basically just gets, you know, loses meaning and purpose and basically eventually either commit suicide, which is what senescent cells do, or they run amok and they just start acting out 
out of you know some you know uh, you know sense of bitterness or frustration from having a massive purpose and meaning deficiency, which humans tend to do whenever they get cut off physically, psychologically, emotionally, not only individually in a more practical level, say from just like people in their life, right? Like they don't have no friends or you know for whatever reason become depressed, no friends or, or you know relationships have no meaning and end up sort of you know you know retreating into um, uh, you know meaningless pleasure to try to simulate one of the the surface level feelings that normally comes off of meaning, right? Which would be the dopamine loop, the pleasure loop. But obviously they can devolve into all kinds of mental illness that ends up in a negative feedback loop that can end in obviously either suicide or then becoming nothing but bitter and resentful and then acting out, you know, you know, basically just out of complete separation with the whole and separation with their existential core, which is an extension of the whole. That is such an, uh, just an incredible analogy. Oh yeah, like sit, yeah. to sit with that, and the, mm-hmm. the concept of a senescent cell—it's like, oh, it's a little bit out there. S- statistically speaking, self-harm and suicide is—it seems, from what I'm gathering, on an annual basis, increasing. Mm-hmm. And so, 100%. cellular suicide or or suicide of, of self—that's a—it's a—it's a, a like an outstandingly poignant analogy. Well, it goes back to like even the theory of like the holographic nature of reality that within everything is is the whole is contained or the as above so below principle, right? Mm-hmm. You know that we are the 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 idea that there's really a a base archetype that expands basically to every philosophical and spiritual practice in the world, no matter what model they use to describe it, right? And that is this the as above so below. We are the microcosm of the macrocosm. You know, and so within us is a reflective refractory. It's a reflection of the macro, right? Which is the high, whole idea behind Vedic astrology, whether or not people's individual interpretations of that is immediately accurate, you know, or not. The idea that that there is this ref, this in the expanse of infinity, there is this refractory sort of reflective nature that um, where we can actually see ourselves and everything around us, and that's actually very clear whenever we look at you know the sort of of course, there may be a more complex version of it, but sort of the base scaffold of it, you know, that there's a, there's a reflective nature of it. And whenever you look at this planet, you know, and you understand that, uh, that even under, say, like the guy in principle, or even just from a scientific, you know, you know, standpoint, we know now that we know from many, many scientific research studies that, that, that plants respond, you know, to pain and they respond basically emotionally and yeah. they grow and adapt based on certain types of trauma. And, and to music and intentions right. and... And we know too that they have uh, cellular memory based off of actions of 100%. The people around them. And you know, we know too that that the entire planet is is really interconnected with a base intelligence that's partly mediated by, say, like the mycelial networks that cover the entire Earth. We know that you know, I mean, Paul Stamets and others have done you know really well, you know, making people aware of that. And you know, we know within within forests that basically that acts as sort of like the internet between, uh, you know, say like plant species and stuff. They'll use these fungal mycelial networks as a communication system. But basically, just like our human bodies, the natural ecology is an integrated living system that is one organism, right? And then whenever you really can't separate it off into parts. And, you know, even though, you know, you know we talk about, you know, sort of the, you know, you know, the separation mentality that's occurred in the trajectory of, you know, human evolution where we've ended up now and we're starting to kind of rediscover, you know, I mean, some of us are, um, and, and kind of try to reintegrate as we start to manifest symptoms of that separation in our own physical bodies, the senescent cells of dis-ease, of disharmony, of, yeah. you know, of, of disconnection. We, that's that's woken us up to the realization that we need to reintegrate or we need or will perish to some degree i, I think right? i think it's interesting the concept of the the sep separation 
or the, the disintegration of ourselves in the relation to everything else. Because I, I think it, it's easy to villainize that, you know, I don't know, ontological perspective that's manifested throughout history via maybe like, you know, Cartesian thinking or Newtonian mm-hmm. mechanics or any of that. But I think it, it all actually stems from something that's quite innocent and benign and through a process of attempting to garner an understanding of the self. Mm-hmm. And in that process, our methodologies or our, our perspectives of what the human organism is, is broken down into these separations and into this mechanistic perspective that then ends up kind of entrenching or indoctrinating the, the worldview of the children and the next generation. And then eventually we are a machine and we are this separation yeah. and we are this textbook. And we were trying to, okay, that's a liver, that's a gallbladder, that's yeah. a, you know, and, and then now I feel like culturally through conversations, you know, like this and, you know, just like it's, we're coming back around to this interesting time of like, oh, we're also this unicity thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of gets like poo-pooed on and thrown over the rugs like, oh, that's some new age malarkey. But it's just, it's just, I'm just having that moment of realization in this, in this moment now. It's like, oh, like what a sweet, benign, innocent, like we're just trying to understand this human experience. Yeah. And in doing that, we cut it all apart. And in that separation, just like we were talking about with, with the psychoactively in, induced like states of mind via the plants and stuff, in that separation mentality, we start to, you know, you know, manifest that physiologically and structurally in our culture, right? You know, we start to, we have a separationist mindset and then we actually start to create, you know, physical separation from our environment and to move off and creating all these little artificial yeah. forms of separation as well, too, in it the forms of like, like separate, houses separate and boxes nodes. and different things. You look things. at us over a plane, it's like, oh, it's yeah. like a computer chip. Right, it's exactly. All organized, <laughs> but ones and zeros. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, in all of those things, and there's a possible opportunity in that because having developed maybe certain parts of our perception of our duality, maybe we've been pushed, you know, because... You know, one thing that, that, that is actually pretty clear, too, from all the sociological evidence and things and just, you know, you know from an anthropological standpoint, you study culture, history, et cetera, you know, spiritual practices and stuff, is that under states of trauma, you know, trauma tends to push us in a fight or flight state that causes, a, in, that causes polarity in us to basically retreat to one or the other part of our duality, right? So, which is why you get separation right down the middle, every, everywhere from on the individual level all the way up into the family level, into the cultural and societal level as well, too, um, is because literally, like, the sympathetic state, which usually comes from some form of separation or fear or something like that, it's, it elicits a fight or flight state. That's the fight or flight. It's very directive. It's one or the other. You're either fighting or you're fighting to save your life. And so, our, our fight or flight system can work against us whenever it becomes chronic because it causes us to basically retreat to flight usually, to fight or flight basically into one part, whichever one is more immediately accessible to us, part of our duality. So usually the extreme on the analytical side or the extreme on the introspective, creative, emotional side, you get left and right paradigm, right? You know, and that's because obviously, well, the left side of the brain would be more of the sort of ultra conservative mindset that's rational, practical, that's disciplined, that's about preserving the, the safety and the knowledge of the past. And then the introspective, the emotional, the sort of visionary side of things would be more what we see on the left side. But if you have, if you're pushed out and, and, and become disintegrated with your duality that's, that's in all of us to too far, then it's going to basically distort your perception of objective reality and you know, take you away from self, which is where objective reality really comes from to some degree, right? It's almost like the signal gets distorted because the integration of duality is really where we get 
the clearest signal of objective reality, right? So if we can only see the introspective side devoid of practicality and facts of like the practical steps of like how it actually manifests, right, in life, then we can have good like general basic thoughts and ideas, but no practicality or integration, we can kind of become delusional. And by the inverse, if we just have that conservatism and no vision or introspection, get it cut, cut off from emotion, we end up very mechanistic and very, very sort of mundane, right, in our thought processes. And we're just so fixated on being safe and, you know, into, into um, distinguishing or to, you know, getting rid of chaos that we become these very, very hyperly, you know, structured conservative, which was something that sort of gripped the culture, say, like, say, like the 1950s, right? That yeah. would be more of an... Are you familiar with the uh, book by something, Miguel Christ, called Master and His Emissary? I, I've heard of it. I, I've never read it, though, no. It's, you're describing it. Oh, okay. Okay. Right now, and, and essentially, it's 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 it refers to the different hemispheres of the brain, and mm -hmm. one side, which again, this is you know a model that's probably not perfectly accurate to sure. the reality of, of mm -hmm. consciousness and and mm -hmm. neurology and everything, but that that left hemisphere kind of objective reality, you know, ones and zeros, keep it organized, you know, like analytical side, will have a tendency of of being louder and trumping that kind of more colorful expressive introspective mm -hmm. side and so if you allow it to run amok kind of the way you're describing it allow it to just keep on getting juiced up with more power that others you know more say yin side or more i'm kind of conflating a bunch of different <laughs> words here together <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it will just get more and more silenced right. and eventually you live in this kind of dry analytical hyper pragmatic mm -hmm. kind of like you like can start to suffocate in that because that side of the of the coin is the is more of the executive sort of control structural side, right? So it's yeah. always trying to like basically put boundaries on things, right? To yeah. basically in some sort of you know you know frantic desire to it, to bring about it, some it's, level it's of safety like, or it's security. Like a, it's like it, it's like the the containment of the art, right? But if you contain it so much that you can't allow the artist to come in and express, then it's like now right. it's just containment of containment. And that's exactly that's. <laughs> it's like, what do we even contain it anymore? Yeah, we're, we're out. Yeah. It's, this is literally just one, like layers of containers. You yeah. know, like those little like those little like wooden uh, things where there's right. one inside the other, and then it's like, wait, where's the center right. of this thing? It's just like you know, those little dolls or whatever. Russian, yeah. the Russian dolls. Yeah, exactly. Like there's there's nothing yeah. in here. There's, there's just, just a bunch of containers. Yeah. Yeah, which is Jesus. funny. Yeah, and that just comes back to the the importance of the integration and balance of our, our two sides of duality because because without that structure you just end up you have no integration you have your feet aren't on the ground your root chakra isn't activated whatever terminology that you want to use as far as like because we all know those people too who have strayed too too far off away from their sort of pragmatic structural side and they may be very interesting, very heartfelt. They have a lot of good intention and interesting, like broad picture ideas. They've got a lot of dreams, but a lot of times no practical integration, no structure, no discipline in their life to actually bring that into their individual sort of life, their feet on the ground. Like, what am I going to do today to actually integrate that? How am I going to schedule this meeting to take these practical steps to actually make this vision a reality, right? And so it's it's just one of those things that's just like we have a tendency to be able to, to to polarize on those two sides of duality, and that's where we get our our split. And there's splits between masculine and feminine, yin and yang, and there's all these endless manifestations, truth and illusion and order and chaos. And they're all sort of like in that wheelhouse of different layers of that manifestation. But like 
part of what I see the value of of say you know altered states of consciousness, and I think one reason why we are we are we have a natural drive towards altered states of consciousness that's really it's it's really undeniable, right? Every culture in the history of the world, anthropologically, we can study any culture, have always ended up dr- being drawn to some form of altered states, whether it be through plant medicine of some kind. Of course, alcohol in modern culture, you've got that. You know, entheogens, you know, you know the tryptamine-based psychedelics, ayahuasca down in the Amazon, you know, you know, different you know, psychedelics across time, you know, different types of Groot or beer, or this or that. Or say like drum circles or forms of meditation or, you know, I mean, there, there are endless different practices, but... I think we're naturally drawn to that as sort of a reset mechanism to get out of our alert sort of boxed in living right in this pixel and being able to sort of get outside of our minds to be able to zoom out, to be able to see the picture instead of just the pixel, right? And to be able to connect dots. And I think that that's a natural drive that we have, whether we properly or responsibly sort of capitalize on that, right? And actually do it in a way that serves us. Or if we have that underpinning drive and then we do it in an escapist manner and don't really pay attention to trying to better ourselves or to reconnect with the more authentic part of ourselves. I think that's something that most people are drawn to whether they respond in that way or not, right? When they, when they become isolated. Any, anybody who goes senescent, so to speak, wants to be reconnected, even if they don't consciously know it. I mean, there's, there's a drive there for the most part. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a theory anyways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the part of our drive towards altered states is the potential to reintegrate the two hemispheres of our physical brain to bring us into that perception to where we can get an overarching perspective to help us reset, to help us integrate, to help us sort of clear that, that image of objective reality and get us closer to truth, which is outside of your, your you know, subjective opinion, my subjective opinion. Look, you know, if we, there is an objective reality that takes place outside of my perception or yours, right? For example, right, and that's in, in in the modern world we have. That would probably even be arguable, whether right. there is a reality outside of your perception. And well, I probably I mean absolutely, like highly arguable. Th- they, well, yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. But meaning meaning that I, I guess, or maybe maybe a better way of putting it would be there's there's a a, a collective reality that's generated by the sum of of. Right. of all of its points of attention, There's, right? Yeah, perhaps like a most neutral Correct. median of like, right. okay, here's pretty much the right. middle of what's going on right? between all subjective experiences. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's about it. And that's, and that's kind of what I mean by that is that, is that well, we can at least, that's, that's mainly what the scientific method is, right? Is that we, we have analytical, you know, sort of, you know, sensory measurements that sort of are somewhat of like, okay, so if I walk up on this roof right now, no matter what my subjective opinion is at this very moment, if I step off the roof, I could take a lot of substances that could actually get me to a certain emotional feeling as though, say, I could fly, for example, right? But if I step off the roof, I'm going to fall because there's, there's gravity that's at work. There is a force that's generated either by the collective consciousness of everything that, that's currently residing here or whatever. Right. But I mean, I'm going to fall, right? You know, and so it's like... It's, With an attitude like that, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And maybe that's just a, a huge flaw. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe I'm not trying hard enough and I do, do need to work on that. But yeah, that's okay. <laughs> we, <laughs> I want to talk about uh, what, well, I want to talk about kava yeah. specifically. I'm drinking some kava right now. I'm about to crack the can. Mm-hmm. <sighs> 
And it's some sukaba is something that I've been drinking since I moved to Hawaii when I was 18 years uh-huh. old and discovered kava bars out there at that time. And I've appreciated kava as being kind of like an esoteric, strange thing that not a lot of people know about. And I discovered it through True Kava, which is the company that you created. True Kava is, is what we call this, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And TRU, yeah. TRU Kava. And I was immensely excited to get to have a conversation with you to understand like the deeper underpinnings and neurochemical happenings of this magical mm-hmm. beverage that it's very common throughout the South Pacific Island mm-hmm. countries and Hawaii and places of the sort. And particularly, I'm so excited that we started the conversation off with all of that. Yeah. And with the impact of, say, you know, just dousing culture in alcohol and caffeine mm-hmm. and say, okay, cool. Like, what kind of web does the spider, the human spider, create out of that, those substances right. being the main thing that we're swimming in? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, are there some other perhaps no wrong or right but what happens if we start to kind of infuse other substances mm-hmm. or beverages or you know anything into the culture what can happen i think that kava is one of those interesting things where it really does open people up to deeper more insightful introspective conversation and kind of calms mm-hmm. the, the the human down and kind of puts you in this place of like oh, it's like this parasympathetic exhalation like everything is okay right which is so fucking valuable <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's incredibly, and it's so relevant to <laughs> the current climate and the time that we live in right now. It's, and, and, it's and so I, relevant. I wanted the same way we started off with like, what the hell is a psychedelic or a psychotropic or a entheogen? Or and I'd love to keep on going into that conversation. But I'd also love to understand like, what is kava exactly, mm-hmm. and how does it do what it does yeah. at a neurochemical, yeah. physiological level. Super interesting, right? So uh, th- it's it's so great that we start off the conversation like that. Like, rarely do I get a chance to to set the stage with with uh, with that as as a as a reference because it is. I mean, it it is important because you know psychoactive substances have played a huge role, uh, you know, in, in in shaping culture. And there's a magnitude to them. It's more than just that that either little, moderate, or prominent effect that you get whenever you drink something or you drink your morning coffee. There's there's an implication to it culturally, and it's they're very very they're very significant. They have significance. So where does kava fall? You know, kava is very interesting. Kava, out of the litany of available psychoactive substances or pseudo-psychoactive substances or even, you know, physiologically nourishing substances that are not so psychoactive, right, that we have in today's sort of in the health and wellness sphere or even outside of the health and wellness sphere into just modern culture, right? Everything from coffee to adaptogenic herbs that are more you know, physiologically balancing, maybe subtly psychoactive, all the way to the heavy-hitting huge, powerful, you know, sledgehammer psychedelics, the tryptamines, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, ayahuasca, you know, San Pedro's cactus, mescaline, all of those, you know, even, even bufo, you know, this is, you know, the secretion from toad, you know, all of those are like the heavy, heavy hitting sort of earth shattering psychedelics that have gotten a lot of press in recent years. They're starting to kind of come out of the woodworks is like, but and we're trying to figure out how do we, where do those things fit, right, in today's culture? Because, like, it's kind of a shock having something that's been so heavily prized, like those compounds, but in a very specific context with years, with, 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 you know, not, you know, you know, centuries, thousands of years of proper, you know, strategy and, you know, facilitation and, you know, from the shamanic cultures around that, trying to just drop those into our sort of, like, 
you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, senescent mentality based like, from like, our like terminology. Whip, whip, whiplash. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And so that oh. one's that's that's I'm an interesting. Doing it all wrong. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it can it, it can be a shock, and it's like there's strategy to everything, even something that's incredibly valuable. But so so that's an entirely different conversation. But where Kava kind of falls is Kava's like somewhere in the middle between those, right? So Kava. What's super interesting to me about Kava, because I have a lot of experience in my process. I went through a transformational process of like losing my health completely and went on this odyssey to try to get it back and was heavily involved in addiction and a bunch of other things. So I had this road that a lot of people that are sort of in this sphere, you know, have, have had to gone through and that's helped shape my mentalities today. But in that process, I've gotten to be well acclimated uh, or as well acclimated as, as, you know, I mean, you know, pretty well acclimated to most of those compounds that I just you know, listed off. So everything from the adaptogenic herbs out of traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, you know, you know, Amazonian medicine, Native American folk medicine, et cetera, all the way into even the synthetic compounds that we get out of allopathic medicine, all the way into the heavy hitting psychedelics. And we've got a lot of experience with all of those. When I came across Kava, the thing that interested me about it was not only how it was so relevant to my particular issue, which I can get into here, here a little bit later um, at the time, but how it kind of bridged the gap between those two sides of things, like the adaptogenic herbs and like the heavy, like say like, you know, psychoactive medicines. Like it's like, it, it takes a lot of the elements of a lot of those substances and kind of wraps it all up into one in this very versatile, tolerable medicine that has adapted to a level of tolerability and, you know, sort of synchronicity, if you will, with the human organism that it's very just well accepted and tolerated you know, by most people, which is very valuable too, because it's not, it's not always about how strong the medicine is. Mm -hmm. It's about, does it fit for your life at that time? And does the experience, are you ready for that experience? And sometimes hitting someone over the head with a sledgehammer, even if it's showing them something that's innately true or something that's, you know, maybe those, those demons aren't, aren't ready to be fully excavated all at once, right? The person isn't ready to accept. re-traumatize a person. 100%, you know, I mean, you know, the states that these that these medicines like the heavy hitting psychedelics, you know, the Chinese have a word that means both great risk and opportunity, danger and opportunity. And I personally, I believe that that's the realm that you enter into. It's not necessarily it's where kind of ethics and morality breaks down. It brings you into you know kind of into the realm of duality and things like that. But it's it's a uh, it's it definitely is an amplifier of consciousness and um, creates an opportunity you know, for you to go a little bit deeper and more sort of into that higher helicopter view of your life. But you may see and experience things about yourself that are not only incredibly unsettling, but are incredibly traumatizing. And if you're not in a place where you're ready to address those things, it can actually have, oh, this is something that a lot of people that's not talked about a lot, but it can have an opposite. I've seen it have an opposite effect on people where whenever they come back, they can no longer live in the ignorance is bliss type of mentality. But if they're not ready to change the structures in their life and actually to do the work, now they're tormented by knowing more of the impact of what they're doing. And so it causes them to drives them deeper into addiction, right? Not the psychedelic itself, but their, their unreadiness, obviously, right? And now having that viewpoint. So, so that's why like, I personally never feel comfortable of course, you know, having any kind of level of responsibility of telling someone that they should have one of those experiences, because what the hell do I know about, you know, I can say, this is my experience. And if you feel as though you're drawn to it, then it's one thing. But I, you know, I kind of digress from that. The, the thing about kava is, um, kava is very unique, right? So unlike, say, like the tryptamine-based psychedelics, 
we know that it has an effect, or like the tryptamine-based psychedelics, we know it has an effect on left-right brain hemisphere integration. We know that it, it increases hypercommunication between those two sides of the brain, which is really, really valuable from the conversation we had earlier about integration, right? Being separated off into one side and hyper, getting hyperplasticity in certain parts and different things from driving one pattern in your life for too long, creating imbalance, and then manifesting in your reality being imbalanced. You know, kava has that effect, but doesn't take you into an altered state in a level of depth that sort of forces you to like visually confront things in a very abrasive way, right? So it more kind of gives you that background sort of um, high level perspective in high dosages, right? And these things, this effect is prominent even in low dosages, but a lot of people today not being very sensitive to that don't notice it until they get to really high dosages of it but it still actually is there acting. And it's just to kind of, you know, retract a little bit from there to kind of set the scene of exactly what kava is from a plant standpoint. Kava is a elixir, a plant elixir drink that's prepared. It's a composition, you know, that's you know, kind of like coffee is, right? You know, composition is a plant medicine drink. It's the full brew that's produced from the water and pressure extraction of the beans of coffea arabica, right? So that's what coffee is, right? It's not just like one, it's not caffeine. You know, caffeine is one individual compound. Kava is the, the water and pressure extraction prepared in a very specific way, natural way, of the, of the roots of this plant that grows in South Pacific Islands called Piper Mythisticum. And it's a shrub that's in the pepper family. It has these beautiful heart-shaped leaves. It grows about three to six meters off the ground. These bamboo stalks, that, they look kind of like bamboo that grow up. It takes five years minimum to grow a kava plant. But only the roots are consumed because the leaves and stems actually have plant defense alkaloids. They're not ad adaptable to the human digestive. It, you can get effects, but you can also get side effects. So just like rhubarb, where you consume, consume certain parts of the plant, not others. I always think of any interaction with a plant organism as like forming a relationship with an organism, right? And just like other humans, not all plants are ready to have a relationship formed with them. Yeah. <laughs> Some have their defenses up, right? And sometimes you have to break down those defenses. And, to, a lot, and, and much of like shamanic culture, something that most or many, maybe many people wouldn't be so familiar with that maybe have like heard of ayahuasca or things of the sort. The other part of that, if you talk to anyone that's like a, a practiced shaman, a big part of their practice and their, and their, their teaching is dieting with lots of plants. Right. Rose and just like there's like a whole plethora of different ones. So the idea that you just get this like, you know, knock your socks off, lift off moment. And like, that is, that is the thing. It's like, no, yeah. no, that's actually a very small, you know, tip of the iceberg that people are exposed to because it kind of has this like shock and awe. Yeah. But much of it is actually dieting on, on plants that are much less like right. psychotropic in the way that we would traditionally think. And that's, that kind of feeds back into the point we we're making earlier about, you know, getting all of these, a lot of collective messages from the natural ecology that we have extended out of a lot of time is what gives us a good, you know, balance and brings value in all different layers, right? You know, and so like a lot of people just consider the ones, the organisms that are psychoactive to be the ones that just lift you off. That's undeniable that take you outside of your mind, outside of reality itself yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, really there's a lot more substances that are psychoactive to the neural network of your body, even if you're not feeling them as much in your brain and in your consciousness to your digestive system that's all wired in with nerves and stuff or to your you know, to your immune system and everything that sort of integrates that balance of everything that allows your perception to be properly facilitated in your health and your energy production and your human experience is, is affected by a lot of those things. And so a lot of those practices are from years of, not through, through scientific method, but years, decades, centuries, millennia of direct experience with these organisms and forming relationships with all of them, just like 
the brew of ayahuasca. It's always mysterious to scientists and, anthropolog and, and anthropologists whenever they go into the Amazon. They're like, how'd you figure this combombination out? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and they're like, and then it's kind of funny because normally they'll tell you like, oh, well, the plants told us or something, right? Yeah. And, and then people are like, you know, like they get, you know, they kind of laugh at that. But it's like, well, they're, they're using certain terminology, right, that sounds weird to us because obviously plants don't communicate through language like higher vertebrates. But they're, they're referring to this understanding of these signaling networks that, that, that generate a message that lock them into, it's sort of like the senescent cell gets a little bit more closely reintegrated with the other cells. So it's getting the collective picture and it understands this network over here, this sub-network, right? It's like tapping into that mycelial network. Exactly. As, as an analogy, yeah. perhaps. And yeah, it, it's, right, so again. For, for someone that's not familiar with ayahuasca, the, the, the combination, I believe it's shakruna, is mm -hmm. the, the plant that they blend with the ayahuasca vine. That... Benisteriopsis, yeah. Or, is that yeah. what it's called? Yeah. Is that the shakruna part, or is that that's, the, is that's that the, the ayahuasca vine. part? Benisteriopsis or uh, Syrian rue uh, is, is, are usually the two, but that's the one that has the... MAOI in it. Right. So it's, there's, there's one compound that's got, that you refer to that has DMT in it, yeah. which is not absorbable through the digestive tract because it gets broken down by the Is this that the enzyme. ayahuasca vine? Uh, no, the ayahuasca vine actually is believed to have more of the intelligence, but it's, it's actually the MAOI. Oh. But it helps to facilitate the DMT, even though the belief from indigenous people is usually that the vine contains more of the intelligence. Oh, I didn't but it's know actually that. mainly the monoamine oxidase inhibitor that inhibits. The enzyme in the gut that breaks down DMT, allowing yeah. it to be orally activated, kind of like psilocybin. Am I saying shakruna wrong? No, no, no. It's it's that's I, I believe that's the right pronunciation of okay. it. Okay, and that's yeah. and that and so that's the is the it DMT a, containing? I believe, and it's a leaf. I, yeah, I, I yeah, usually, yeah, yeah. I wanted to share something that I have been loving for the last, it's been a very long time, since I moved to Hawaii when I was 18 years old, I discovered this stuff called kava. They have kava bars all over there. They're very popular in the South Pacific Islands, and it is amazing stuff. It's incredible for downregulation of your nervous system, calming yourself down, reduction of anxiety, insomnia relief. I'm just gonna read a list of some of the things it's really good for. Deeper, more restorative sleep, boosting mood and sociability, enhancing mental focus and creativity, it has anti-inflammatory effects, a ton of stuff. When you are drinking kava, it's an incredible way to connect with those around you. It's a great replacement for alcohol, I would say a million percent. And I really love the stuff. I particularly value the kava from True Kava. And we also have a 15% discount for listeners out there. So all you got to do to get the 15% discount and try kava for yourself is go to gettruekava.com slash discount slash align 15. So that's spelled get true kava g e t t r u k a v a dot com slash discount slash align 15. I think this stuff is just fantastic. It doesn't have any kind of hangover effects and it is one of my favorite tools for hanging out with friends for people I care about sharing some kava and uh, just going deeper in conversations feeling fun feeling amicable feeling euphoric and I think you guys are going to dig it. So jump over to gettruekava.com slash discount slash align 15. You can also just use the align 15 code at checkout for 15% off. 
also wanted to share something that has been an absolute game changer for my sleep and muscular recovery. That is magnesium, particularly Mag Breakthrough from BioOptimizers. Magnesium is a mineral that it's just wise to supplement. It's largely deficient in modern day soil. It's largely deficient in most people for that reason. And Mag Breakthrough is a fantastic complex of magnesium. It contains all seven different forms and it's fantastic. I even chew the, I open the capsules and taste it. I think it tastes great. It might be a little weird, but uh, I genuinely appreciate the flavor of the product and think it's important to implement into anyone's life. If you care about your sleep, if you care about muscular recovery and the best part is you can get yourself a discount by going over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcasts. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash align podcast. And you'll get yourself a 10% discount on top of any other discounts they may have. So jump over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast for a discount. If you do not love this product, if it doesn't make a difference in your life, get your money back. No questions asked. I think you're going to dig it. That's it. Magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. For someone that hasn't had the experience with a psychedelic in general, or maybe ayahuasca particularly, it's unlike anything you could ever possibly imagine without actually having the experience. So it's kind of almost like trite or like silly to for me to even attempt to express. Right. But for these primitive, in quotations, individuals to be able to just, by happenstance, stumble across this like miraculous process of fusing these together and boiling them and going through the, you know, this whole thing to be able to create this compound, it does not make any sense from a Western pragmatic, pragmatic perspective. Reductions, it makes yeah. no sense. It would be next to impossible, you know? It's, if, a, diff- if- it's a different game. It's a different board. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, in order to be able to investigate that, I, I, would pr- I would think one would have to be willing to put a different set of goggles of perception on right. to even be like, oh, okay, that's how that happened. And if you've, if you've been, anyone who's been down that road with intentional use of, of psychedelics of any kind, I think can at least start to grasp that principle that there is another story, there is another side of the story, and can kind of feel that this idea of reharmonizing or reintegrating into a collective intelligence where you could start to notice, have pattern recognition, and start to feel some of the organisms in a different way and start to get these sort of what we'd call intuitions, which may just be sort of a re just like, look, it's like we believe in senescent cells and we believe in non-senescent cells in our body. How does, how do those, how do all those skin cells know what each other's doing and know what the heart cell or the lung cell or the liver cell or the brain cell is doing, right? We believe in that. Obviously we do because we're alive, right? (laughs) We know that's the case. And, and so can you necessarily see all of those things? Are they in, no, it's not, I can't look at it, but I certainly know it's there. We've got electron microscopes and certain things we, we know. And so there's just a lot more to the story that's outside of our like limited perception. Yeah. From the pragmatic reductionist standpoint, it would certainly be next to impossible out of thousands, tens of thousands of plants, yeah. you know, to be able to find the two, right, that worked so synergistically to help facilitate that, you know. Yeah. But, you know, just like that, that's also relevant to the, um, to the conversation with kava and everything too, because the people of the South Pacific where kava grows have facilitated kava in a, in a, a similar way, which is why whenever I got into this, really integrating myself into that culture and getting to know from an anthropological standpoint, but also spending time with people who are indigenous islanders, get lots of conversation to really sort of step into the story of Kava so that I could understand it as an organism as best that I could. Mm. 
because when I stumbled across Kava, which I kind of tripped over it uh, <laughs> in my healing process, I had already had lots of plant medicine journeys and I was already in that line of thought and I had a, a deep respect for these, these living organisms that I believe are acting as representatives, you know, for the natural ecology and that have so much potential promise, but also need to be facilitated in their correct way, you know, um, or a, a way that, that serves us. So I, I knew that Kava was the same way pretty instantly because I, I started using it for its physiologic benefits. But once I started to realize that this was in a category that was a psychedelic in a very different way than we think of as like, you know, of like ayahuasca, I started to see and feel from my perspective that it had tremendous implications for the, the collective culture if it, if it was properly facilitated, integrated. And so I needed to understand it from a historical standpoint as best as I could to help facilitate that because... Because I think that anyone who's working with plant medicines, I, there's a level of responsibility to, to sort of let it work through you and, in, in, you know, to you, just for lack of a better description and to help it do what it does best and to not contradict or undermine its intelligence in any way. Yeah. So I'd love to get into some of the kind of like structural mechanics of what the heck it does and perhaps how it relates to other substances as well mm -hmm. and so getting into things like the the gabi gabinergic systems in the brain and just like what's like the neurochemistry of like the breaks of our neurochemistry of our nervous system yeah. what's the acceleration how many people are stuck in like a perpetual maybe foot on the gas pedal foot on the brake at the same time how many yeah. people are smoothly oscillating between them how does kava come into that conversation of being yeah. more fluid with gas and, and brakes within our nervous system. And this is great. It's, it's, it's great that we touch on, we kind of, you know, you know, shift gears and look at this through the scientific lens as well too, you know, just because a lot of people speak that language and it's good to have sort of these objective sort of measurable, you know, mechanisms in place. And it's great because we have all this cultural context and this experiential use and understanding, like I kind of alluded to with the indigenous people. Kava has been used for 3,000 years um, in the South Pacific as a core foundation of their entire culture. It's been used like we use coffee or alcohol. In Vanuatu, which is an island chain of about 83 islands, it's right outside of Fiji, the entire country, about 90% of their population consumes it daily. And they use it for weddings, funerals, spiritual ceremonies, social gatherings. You know, it's a core part of the social fabric of their culture. They've got kava bars there, 20 times as many as they have regular bars because mm. they prefer the atmosphere that it creates. The yeah. sort of pseudo-entheogenic introspective state of mind that helps, that facilitates human community and connection. It in, induces states of empathy, um, you know, and, it, you know, upliftment, but, you know, relaxation at the same time. It's, it's like alcohol without the drunkenness, plus some of the effects of microdosing psychedelics, but not taking you out of your realm of sobriety. It's like a calm, enhanced state of natural sobriety uh, that's just great because it's so controlled, but yet also profound over time whenever you spend a lot of time in that state right and there's like a euphoric kind of like loving edge to it as correct well. yeah it really opens up the heart center so to speak right and we know that it acts through some of the serotonin pathways which i'll dive into here in a second but just you know you know a couple other quick things about it and it's and its application for environment so a lot of people are using it as an alternative to alcohol in modern culture or as an off-ramp to alcohol from alcohol and from other substances because it helps to prop up the same receptors, but it actually, we know scientifically, it has a more of a restorative, you know, effect on those, an upregulatory effect instead of a downregulatory depleting effect, borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today, so to speak, yep. which is what synthetic substances and even alcohol do. You, you, 
you have a good time right now, but you, you, you're charging on credit <laughs> with your brain chemistry. Which you're places spending. you into an almost impossible loop to leave. Yes, right. And it's, it's, a, um, it's, it's a compensatory loop that's usually, it obviously stems from whenever people go into addiction, of course, usually trauma, you know, and disconnection from self and all that stuff we kind of touched on earlier. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, so, so from a mechanistic standpoint, kava is, kava is actually one of the most well-studied herbs in the world, believe it or not, outside of cannabis and ginseng and reishi mushroom. A lot of people don't know that because it's one that's very rarely in the conversation as of now, and there's all kinds of reasons for that that we can get into as well. But there's a long, there's, there's a robust body of scientific evidence establishing not only its mechanisms, its composition, dosages, safety, preparation, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, basically it's just like cannabis, just like we've learned with cannabis, you know, plant medicines, because they're living organisms, they have a wide variety of active constituents, just like us as organisms. We don't have, just have one cell type or one hormone or, you know, or, you know, a molecule that elicits activity and communication. It's got a lot. So it ends up interfacing with human biology in a complex way because it's like an assembly line. You know, the biochemical sequences in it are kind of like an assembly line, just like in our body. And there's lots of sequences, right? So it's a system, living system, just like cannabis, right? With cannabis, we hear about, it's not just one compound. We hear about THC with cannabis, right? But there's THC and there's like 200 cannabinoids, right? That work alongside of THC. It's kind of like that symphony, that orchestra that all works together, that gives it depth. The entourage. Effect. Exactly, right? And so with kava, the active constituents are these lipid-like compounds. The most active instruments in the orchestra are these compounds called kava-lactones. And uh, lactones are like lipid-like compounds that whenever you make the traditional brew, they sort of rise to the top and they have this gloss on the very top. And there's, there's six major kava-lactones, kind of like the THC and the CBDs, you know, in, in cannabis, right, that we kind of give the most credit to. There's one called cavein, dihydrocavein, which is a double bonded form of that. There's one called methistican, one called dihydromethistican, one called yangonin, and one called desmethoxyangonin. So that's a mouthful, but basically those are the major ones. And then there's 18 known isolated cavalactones that are total. And then lots of supportive flavonoids, alkaloids, other constituents, you know, that help with the bioavailability, um, with the half-life, and it's, it's, a compos- it's, it's an orchestra. Again, whenever you separate the constituents, you, you end up getting a small shade of the effects. Like if you isolate THC from cannabis, it's, it's, you get less depth uh, to the overall effect and it's not as good and you can get side effects. Um, but uh, so basically, you know, the main mechanisms that have been most well studied and, and most prominent, both from an experiential standpoint and in the scientific literature, mood, relaxation, and mental clarity, like is what Kava is most known for, right? <laughs> Mainly anxiety relief because of its relaxing effects. So you mentioned the GABAergic system. Is that is that? Sorry for interrupting you. I think you're about to answer what I'm about to ask. But is is the anxiolytic effect of kava what induces the cognitive clarity? Because it perhaps opens up more bandwidth because you're not like stressed out in quotations. Oh, that's that's actually a very good question, right? Because there is this principle of energy diversion, right? Whenever yeah. you're in a stressed out state, your a lot of your energy is moving off to your limbs and extremities to get away from the tiger. That's part of it. It, but the gabinergic system in and of itself, just like any neurotransmitter, increases cell-to-cell communication. So you're going to get somewhat of a nootropic effect uh, from most uh, influxes in certain neurotransmitters. It's just a little bit different, right, depending on which is being hit. But the, the, the neurotransmission systems that help the most with working memory and just all standard metrics of cognitive function are like dopamine and acetylcholine, right? That's, that's what you think of the most. Maybe adrenaline as well, too. 
but yeah, so it affects both of those. It affects dopamine really powerfully, actually. It's a monoamine oxidase B inhibitor. We kind of talked about monoamine oxidase in relation to uh, benisteriopsis, which is much more powerful, and it's monoamine oxidase A. Basically, what that does is it inhibits the enzymatic breakdown of certain neurotransmitters or neurotransmitter precursors. Monoamine oxidase B primarily inhibits the breakdown of dopamine in the synapses. So it, it's basically, it increases, you know, um, incumbent levels of dopamine in the brain, but it does it in an intelligent way that actually doesn't downregulate or deplete it, which is super unique if, you know, from, from a pharmacological standpoint, because most things that induce dopamine powerfully create that feedback loop of depleting dopamine and needing to take the next hit. But kava, we know from the studies, and it's, it's, never been, it's never been assessed at any level to elicit any kind of physiologic dependency, right? Um, I, I would say anything, you could develop some level of an emotional, you know, you, you wanted to change your state. But I mean, like, withdrawal, it calling to you, it's very clear that, like, even coffee does that, right? Of course, but, but kava doesn't, which is super unique. Um, but it affects dopamine very powerfully, especially certain strains. So that, that's one mechanism that's responsible a lot for the in, increased sort of cognitive function, the sort of like, you know, the, um, the increased, you know, social lubrication and just kind of getting the wheels turning. The GABAnergic effect that you referred to is its most prominent one. That's the one that it has the most press for. That's the one that's been most heavily studied. And so the GABAnergic system, as where dopamine is sort of like the neurotransmitter for energy focus, motivation, concentration, pleasure, all of that although that's an oversimplification, but that's, it's an all-star for that. GABA is like the primary brakes of the nervous system, right? So anything that you take or do that leads to a good sleep usually has some direct or indirect effect on the GABAergic system. And it kind of is a polar opposite sort of, it's, it's sort of like a seesaw with the most excited, so it's the most inhibitory or calming chemical pathway in the body. It's meant to kind of shut down, inhibit, to keep balance on the system, to reduce levels of cortisol, adrenaline, whenever things get too crazy. But the most excitatory neurotransmitter is its equal opposite. It's called glutamate. A lot of people think it's like adrenaline or something, but it's actually glutamate. And glutamate is crucial for the nervous system, but very carefully regulated. It excites the neurons so much that if it gets imbalanced with GABA, it starts to burn out the neurons and causes what's called excitotoxicity. So like if we've heard of compounds like MSG, MSG is called monosodium glutamate, um, and that's a form of glutamate that's synthetic that puts glutamate into the brain and basically is toxic. It elates the chemistry, it excites it, but then burns neurons out basically, you know? Mm. So that's how it's toxic and addictive, not, not good for you at all. So glutamate is carefully regulated by GABA. And actually there's this system that like whenever glutamate gets too prominent, it gets decarboxylated or converted off into GABA and it's supposed to balance itself. Whenever you're imbalanced, that gets super out of balance, along with adrenaline. When you become sympathetically dominant from stress and trauma and fast-paced lifestyle, too many stimulants, you know, take your pick, modern life, right? We become sympathetic dominant. We become locked in this, this gear that's the fight-or-flight gear that we talked about earlier that's meant to run away from the tiger. It's a, it's a crucial mechanism of survival, but it brings you out of your lower state. It brings you into your, your animal, right? Mm. It's the part that's meant to keep the body alive so it can experience, you know, being alive, obviously, but it's meant to do exactly that. But it reverts energy and chemistry away from your higher brain functions, including, you know, the, you know, the parts of your brain that are introspective and creative, your immune system, your reproductive system. And it's just meant, it reverts energy to your legs, your extremities, your arms, all that stuff. So you can run the hell away from the tiger. But when you're stuck in that state, 
you're stuck in a more animalistic, you know, sort of reactive state, which leads to all kinds of issues and problems. How is all, I feel like a lot of the keywords you're suggesting through there takes my mind to libido. How does it, what, what's, the, what's the effect on, on that? Oh, you know, you know, chronically elevated levels of adrenaline, cortisol, and, and just being stuck in a sympathetic state is a disaster for sexual function. Because, because you know, think about it. If from an adaptive standpoint, from a molecular standpoint or a biological standpoint, when the body's trying to survive, it wants to revert all of its available energy away from functions that are not immediately necessary into functions that are very mechanistic that will either overcome a threat, a tiger, right? If we were, you know, an indigenous person hundreds of thousands of years ago or whatever, or to run the hell away as fast as we can. Like in other words, you know, short term, if there's a threat to the body, it doesn't care about a, an infection because infection's a long-term thing, right? So it's going to revert energy away from the immune system. It doesn't care about reproduction because if that tiger catches you, you're not reproducing. It doesn't matter anyways, you know? So you got to get away from it, right? So energy is going to be pulled away from your hormonal production cycle, your endocrine system in that standpoint, and it's going to suppress the, the, the production and maintenance of hormonal systems that regulate immune function, reproductive function, and higher introspective brain function. And then this seems like there's a segue into the, uh, if I'm using it correctly, the apoptotic effects of kava and like cellular apoptosis mm -hmm. and potentially like cleaning up senescent cells in the body. Is that something that I just recapitulated in an incorrect way based off of hearing your past interviews? No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's a great point. And it's, it's a great Which comes segue. Into like, 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 I think a common in that conversation would be like fasting. Right. And people are in like the longevity space yeah. or interested in that. Right. Is there some longevity component yes. and like cellular cleanup component to this? So, so how we bridge this gap. So now that we've kind of explained what the sympathetic mode of the nervous system is, right? Yeah. So that's, that's the part that of us that where there's an epidemic of overly activated sympathetic states, right? I would say the vast majority of us are, are stuck in sympathetic far too much. We know that just by our fast-paced lifestyles, the rat race that is modern culture, um, not even to mention current traumas from everything that's been going on the last two years and before, even before then, we've got, you know, all kinds of stuff. We've got, you know, you know environmental toxins that are, that are threatening our bodies, that are accumulating in our bodies as well, too. All kind of, you know, manifestations of nature divorcement syndrome, you know, <laughs> manifesting and bubbling up inside of our physical bodies, minds, and, and basically telling us that, hey, there's something wrong here, and our body's responding as if there's a threat internally present, constantly to some varying degree. And it, it, some people... You know, you know, the human body is so amazing that it adapts to an incredible amount of these stressors to, to, to stay alive and to self-regulate. But there's a point, and we've kind of hit that tipping point, where the, the more susceptible people in large numbers are starting to manifest incredible amounts of disease from being held in sympathetic and being basically, you know, exposed to an overwhelming amount of stress, physical stress, psychological stress, emotional stress, chemical stress, even electromagnetic stress, all these manifestations of that. So that's important. Because stress really is the underpinning of most chronic disease, all of these stressors, right? That's, that's what drives chronic disease. Susceptible genetics, maybe, that can create a susceptibility, a vulnerability to chronic disease. It's the combination of accumulated stressors that turns on bad genes epigenetically, that drives cellular inflammation, that drives these, these disharmonies in our body, that break down the communication system like, say, like people like Zach Bush talk about a lot, that like all disease comes down to loss of communication at the cell level, yeah. which happens from inflammation, this disconnection thing and sympathetic. And yeah. So, so we kind of set the stage with this, the situation with over sympathetic dominance and how that drives a lot of disease and things, right? 
Um, so we know that that's a huge fundamental problem with most chronic disease, and it, almost everybody can relate to that in their lives of having, you know, just having to you know figure out a way to adapt to a very unnatural amount of stress and trauma and things, right? So, so anything that you can do, practices, uh, you know, uh, you know, strategies in your life that of course helps with that is usually a good thing if it doesn't lead to some sort of habituation addiction or perpetuate the issue in some weird way. Kava's, you know, one of Kava's primary mechanisms is on that GABA system, right? That opposes glutamate, that opposes adrenaline, also helps to, to modulate it. So whenever we become in sympathetic dominance, we're, we're overexpressing those chemical pathways like adrenaline and glutamate that are sort of doping up the system and exciting it, which leads to accelerated aging, inflammation, reverting energy away from all the functions we talked about. You know, it messes with our sleep, our ability to recover. So that's fight or flight. And then there's the parasympathetic, which we need more of in our life. That's the other mode, like it's like a switch in the nervous system. We go from sympathetic, then the tiger goes away, and then the body's supposed to shift back into parasympathetic. That's rest and digest, right? So rest and digest is like where we, where we absorb energy from the parts of the ecology that we're putting into our body, right? The other organisms, food. <laughs> and, then, and then where we, where we digest that, and then where we recover and go into a resting state. So it's all about recovery. And recovery is so, so important, you know, for maintaining ourselves and, um, you know, stabilizing everything. So Kava's main signature, I guess this is an important thing from, from an experiential standpoint, anthropological standpoint. You know, I talked about how, how earlier that, you know, these plant medicines are organisms in the natural ecology that develop adaptive characteristics. And there's a biological or biochemical manifestation to that. And because we're organisms as well. Whenever we take them into our bodies, it, they transfer those effects to us and sometimes those messages to us, right? So Kava's sort of signature, if it had one sort of overarching theme or signature is, is it's, it's a protective organism. So it plays a protective role in the natural ecology, protects other plants around it from pests, it stabilizes certain things and everything. So it develops a lot, it's, it's exposed to a lot of harsh attacks and different things from you know, animals and stuff. So it, it develops a lot of biologically adaptive, a full array of a biologically adaptive, protective chemical mechanisms that span across virtually every mechanism that we know of in biology, which is then consistent with higher vertebrates like us. So that's why when we look at the scientific literature, we find that kava hits on just about every neuro and tissue protective mechanism that we know of, right? So GABA is sort of like the one that's most prominent, the one that's so... It opposes that sympathetic, it, it pumps the brakes, but it does it in a way that doesn't steal even more from our, our supply of GABA, our stores of GABA, because that's a problem too of, you know, the sympathetic state drives up adrenaline in all these systems, which then overpowers and depletes our body because we don't recover and depletes our body's ability to create the necessary GABA and other chemicals that are supposed to oppose them. So usually in people that are sympathetically dominant, they will have low incumbent levels of GABA and serotonin. And so that can lead to depression, depletion, and inability to adapt to stress. So kava is actually able to elevate those, but not in a depletatory way. So like if you, if you end up in that cycle, that trauma stress cycle, and then you try to medicate that with alcohol, all you're doing is you're spending a chemical, you're spending your, your currency of a chemical that you're already low in, so then you're twice as depleted the next day, you're twice as sleepless, you're twice as everything or, you know, weeks, months later, um, because it's, it's depleting your stores. It's acting as basically, it's binding to those GABA receptors like alcohol does. It's pumping the brakes right then, but it's basically opening up the floodgates and depleting that bank account even further. So then you need alcohol even more. That's why you get a, what's called a down regulation. The body says, this is, 
this is an external source uh, of something that's basically just directly hitting the receptor and dumping it. We want to stop that, so we're going to downregulate our production of this to try to you know disincentivize it. And so it you lead to that feedback loop of needing more of the same substance to get the same effect eventually, and then effect, you know eventually you don't get much of an effect at all. Now you're just using to maintain and not go into withdrawal, which is basically like you've charged so much credit and you've borrowed so much money that the account is empty. And if you don't use that credit card every single day, you can't. You have nothing to spend, right? So you don't have that chemistry to feel balanced at all, and so therefore you're in withdrawal. So what's interesting about covenant's pharmacology is is that it has an opposite effect. It, it has this, this phenomenon that's been referred to as reverse tolerance in the ethnobotanical and scientific community, which is super unique because what we know is what we see in a couple of the studies now and what's had been proposed for years before, that with long-term use, we actually see an upregulation in the GABA system, right? And an increase in GABA receptor density, the number of, uh, of available GABA receptors. And so what it seems to be doing over time is it gives you that acute relief, kind of like alcohol, especially in high dosages without the drunkenness or the functional impairment, but then it also helps to refuel that system and replete it. So it not only is it not classically a drug in that sort of negative sense, but it's more of an anti-drug. It's more of a restorative medicine mm. that gives you that acute effect also. There's a lot of adaptogens that can help subtly in the restoration of the body, but this gives you that acute power, right? That, that instant sort of kick but then also is sort of refueling that parasympathetic and it's strengthening the parasympathetic or balancing sympathetic parasympathetic. Super, super amazing and super, super relevant, you know, physiologically. Um, so the GABA system, what we see is it binds to GABA-A receptors, creates the upregulatory effect. I, I already mentioned the dopamine effect. So it has this sort of GABA dopamine thing going. And so it's not like if you take a benzodiazepine like Xanax or Klonopin, which are some of the most commonly prescribed drugs and really an epidemic of addiction, just like opiates in and of themselves. I was a big fan of them in high school. Yeah. And they're very similar to alcohol in the way that they just sort of, they relax you, open people up. But also had several friends die. Yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. And you can die, you can, you can die from the withdrawals on those drugs. Yeah. You can die from overdosing on those drugs. The, uh, and the, the legal drugs. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The good drugs. The good stuff, yeah. yeah. The, the sanctioned drugs. <laughs> yeah, the, stuff the, the white lab the coat stuff drugs. The stuff of the person, the, the white lab coat that everyone yeah. respects is like, uh, yeah. we're good. Good stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, the good this, stuff. This is, this is, yeah. It almost yeah. chronically, benzodiazepine use almost certainly is, is going to lead to a disaster. I mean, it's not, it's one of those things if you're having a seizure or something or acutely and you need to stop some sort of sporadic something, like it's one thing just kind of like using general anesthesia, like if you need to have a surgery. But chronically, to get on benzos in any kind of regular way, extraordinarily dangerous, extremely, because you're depleting that system that is so crucial for regulating that inhibition. And that's why whenever you're withdrawing from benzos and alcohol, you go into seizures. What are other substances outside of kava that restores some of those systems? Specifically, the GABA system or the um, yeah. GABA serotonin dopamine. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, the as as far as what we know of via you know you know plant pharmacology and stuff. There's a lot of the adaptogenic herbs that over time. Mm. That's why they're called adaptogens. Is that they help the body sort of readapt, um, but they don't have as much of a powerful selection for that system of specifically the parasympathetic restoring that and pumping that up. A lot of them, like the classic ones, say like the top all stars in traditional Chinese medicine the ginsengs, right? Yeah. And I mean like the true ginsengs, not like what you get at the health food store in most cases. Like if you actually like go to a Chinese medical practitioner and you get like a, there's a, there's a realm of quality and potency. When you get like real ginseng, 
it's a totally different experience than what most people are, are used to. But ashwagandha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ashwagandha affects the GABA system as well too. Um, so as far as other plant compounds that at least help to prop that system up naturally without depleting it, yeah. Um, you've got valerian root, passion flower, lemon balm, skull cap, which is you know you know something that's there's an American skull cap and then a you know a, a Chinese skull cap. Um, magnolia bark is another one that's got a couple alkaloids that are really synergistic. We stack with kava sometimes that are gabinergic. Um, there's a, a, an herb called, you know, swan zhao ren, uh, in traditional Chinese medicine, also known as zizifus. It's from a fruit that, uh, that grows in China and it's a powerful gabinergic sort of sleep aid and it helps to modulate that system and help to sort of restore it as well. But, but kava is really the most powerful one in that wheelhouse that I've ever come across. And so the, the standard adaptogens and then those that I just named are kind of like the plant substances. Chamomile is another one that like hit that GABA system, right? That you find in just regular herbal tea blends and stuff, but they're more subtle, you know, than kava. Kava has that combination of things that you don't really have to guess if you've taken it, uh, if, if you take good stuff. Um, even in smaller dosages, it's there. In high dosages, it's absolutely prominent. Um, as where those things are just kind of, you know, very subtle, but, uh, you know, I'm not aware of anything else that has an affinity for restoring that particular system at the level that kava does, mm. which is just part of kava's really unique application. And you the, can feel it. It's not just a right. abstract exactly. neurochemical like textbook conversation where you're like, okay, cool, GABA, neurotrans, yeah. whatever. It's like <laughs> like you your multivitamin just, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you take, you're like, oh, this is this is causing me to downregulate or mm -hmm. whatever your language for that it is. washes over you and it's an experience kava it's very fast that's one thing about kava is that it's very much an experiential thing and it's very much it just has this therapeutic effect so you know we touched on a few of these individual mechanisms obviously so there's the gaba system the dopamine system it also affects serotonin in a similar way that does dopamine it, it, it's a cholinesterase inhibitor as well so it increases naturally increases acetylcholine so it has this balanced rate where it really just props up the brain chemistry but relaxes the brain and the mind at the same time. So it's not like a lot of these stimulants that just like just like dump the chemistry, right? Where you get an effect, but then you pay for it later with that, you know, that that credit effect. And it, it doesn't it washes over your system in a very restorative way that you can feel. It loosens you up. It just nourishes you physically and emotionally as well. Because we're so many of us are walking around so depleted by that sympathetic dominance and just we're just exhausted. And kava kind of comes in as kind of like this warm blanket, this chemical blanket that you feel in your system in high doses where it just kind of wraps itself around you. And it's just a nourishing, protective substance. That's, that's one of the, the things I've had, I've experienced with, is particularly with Bufo. You mm -hmm. mentioned DMT. And that was uh, going through a particular ceremony, you could say, with that. I experienced what it felt like for the first time to completely relax. And I think that's an interesting thing that many people don't really have any like relative anchor point to understand. Like, what does it actually mean for your body to completely relax, surrender all the subtle little tensions that you may have had in your shoulder, or your throat, or your masseter, or your eyes, or your mm -hmm. pelvic floor muscles, or like all the inner little sphincters throughout your whole <laughs> intestinal drive, like your whole body just completely fucking surrender yeah, for yeah. a span of, you know, eight minutes or whatever. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> saying like, amazing feeling. And it's, and it's like, okay, that's, 
that's a that's actually a thing. I didn't yeah. know that was on the table. I thought tension was a baseline, you know, was was a baseline experience of just being alive, right? Yeah, Some and level. It's, but I think you can look at the body kind of like uh, I don't know, the images come to mind like an accordion. You know, you expand the accordion all the way out and then oh, all the right, way back right. in and then all the Do way out relax, and oh, yeah. all the way in, all the way in, <laughs> you know, and, and a healthy, fully expressive, dynamic, thriving cell and, and body, I think has that capacity or access to that full expansion. That flexibility. Yeah. 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 Metabolic mm-hmm. flexibility, physical, mm-hmm. you know, well, and that, that ties into, you know, you, it's all the same thing, I think. Right. And that's, that's an important point. So, you know, so you mentioned like, you know, the, the metabolic effects in cellular autophagy. So, you know, I mentioned that, you know, because kava is a complete organism and because it takes on this protective role, that it's sort of all of its mechanisms extend to the protection of the entire system. And that's why it can have so many applications and so many mechanisms that a lot of people would be like, oh, so it does all those things. What is it not good for? Well, no, they're all threaded together in this protective and they're just some of the most relevant things. So, it has all these metabolic effects, right? And that ties into the protective mechanism as well, too, because... So, you know, we know that it has an effect on cellular autophagy and it has an effect on fat burning. And that's because it heavily activates, uh, it's, it, you know, reduces the overaccentuation of this pathway called mTOR, which is the growth, you know, state in the body, right? If you're locked in it for too long and senescent cells can overly grow and can lead to cancer and certain things that can prematurely age you, it activates this pathway called AMPK, this adenosine monophosphate activated protein kinase pathway, which is responsible for activating basically it's 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 puts the body into a recycling mode right the body has these two metabolic modes just kind of like the sympathetic parasympathetic there's sort of like subcategories right there's there's recycle and renewal right uh and so there's like an out with the old and in with the good right there's a time for the body to cleanse there's a time for the body to rebuild it's resetting yeah i mean at the end of the day, everything occurs in cycles and everything in reality and life is a rhythm, just like your heart beats in a rhythm, right? That the yeah. earth pulsates in a rhythm, the earth turns in a rhythm, the earth, you know. And so that's basically what's what's happening too, is there's a time for the body to maintain its health, for it to shift into these states where it cleans. And it's so efficient, right, in its intelligence where it'll selectively try to burn up the bad tissues, its stored body fat, and convert that into usable energy as fuel, right? So that's, that's if we've heard of the term, you know, a lot of people have now, I've heard of the term cellular autophagy, which is like what you get whenever you try to fast, you intermittent fast, or you go into ketosis, where basically you're telling the body that there's no food coming in or there's no significant like complex or you know, simple carbohydrates coming in or whatever, and even protein. And so then the body says, okay, so we're going to eat from ourselves and we're going to take this opportunity. I don't have, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break down some of the nasty material and use that as energy. So I'll kill two birds with one stone. The, can I share yeah. an analogy with that that I found mm-hmm. helpful? I, I think of the, that process of fasting and cellular autophagy is like if you've ever moved to a new apartment, house, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that experience when you're moving, suddenly all the stuff that you thought you, you cared about, suddenly it's like, okay, you could contain 100% of your shit. Right, right. Now suddenly it's like we literally only have space for like 25%. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you come down of like, okay, that thing that I didn't really care about, that old yeah. piano thing, I didn't really care. It's like, and then there's this sensation of liberation or mm-hmm. freedom on the other side of that of like, oh, I'm so much lighter. Yeah. I think that that is. You freed you yourself know, up to where your attention now has been concentrated what on. What do you really need? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and it some kind of, of the other stuff could have, in fact, been a burden. Yeah. You just, you just, you had, you had so much exposable bandwidth that you could hold on to all of yeah. the burdens. Attention bandwidth too of just like, Hey, you know, like 
you had more, you know, things that were just immediately grabbing your attention or telling your body that they were immediately important by you just, you know, being caught in the loops of life or whatever. And then whenever, for whatever reason, a pressure came or you had to move or this and that, it caused, it created that energy diversion where all of a sudden you're like, okay, so what do I actually really need? And you're able to actually like, instead of, you know, external threats or stimulus forcing you to focus on the external, you've, you've shut off the external to some degree or the external input. And now you free up and you automatically just turn the camera inwards and be like, okay, where can I clean up here? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I've needed to clean that up for a long time. And then which, which once again, you know, that's why fasting, maybe one of the perhaps many reasons why fasting has been a, you know, not just a nutritional practice, but a, a, a spiritual in quotations, mm -hmm. depending on how you perceive that word practice for a long time. Right. You know, it's not just, okay, cellular autophagy. And again, like these things you read in a textbook, there's, yeah. there's something more or maybe less definable or less like effable yeah. that takes place in yeah. that, in that process of like, okay, we know again, that there's as, a, as above, so below kind of exactly kinda like there's, there's, there's things that are going on as far as disposing of our emotional blockages as well as our physical blockages. It's like, however that manifested that we're, you know, trapped emotions. That's it's, I think it's very clear that that's a thing, even though that's very difficult to like fully quantify and stuff is that, even if it's trapped in our fascia or a lot of the theories and you know different things or certain neural pathways, the body turns inwards and it says, okay, I'm going to deal with some of these inconsistencies that are locking up my energy. It's, it's, it's Clean like, it up. It's like, sorry for interrupting you so much, but it's, 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 I think it's kind of like the, if, you're, if you would like to investigate how these, you know, whatever, hunter, gatherer, ancestral, primitive people discovered to, to blend these two plants in the Amazon out of like the hundreds of thousands of possibilities mm -hmm. and do that exact process to create this thing that we call ayahuasca, you need to put on a new lens of perception. Right, Like right. you need to be willing to allow yourself to enter onto a new board mm -hmm. for a moment to be able to say like, okay, like maybe there's another kind of way to look at this. Right. And I think within that, it's like, okay, maybe with some of these other conversations, this is the, you know, the effect of fasting and the effect mm -hmm. of these other parts. It's like maybe just what we're able to define in a textbook, they perhaps there's another game that we can maybe just... Maybe there's a bigger model, right? Yeah, another know? game we can just be open to investigating. Right, we're yeah. not buying any, you know, any boards. We're just saying, okay, what about that? Let's just see what that's yeah. like. It's all about the lens and the model of your existence and your reality. And it's like... These altered states, and fasting is another one that we didn't mention, but that comes full circle to what we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation when we were talking about the underpinning, un untangible but definitely present drive toward altered states of consciousness. And fasting is one of those, you know, sort of historical mediums that's probably one of the oldest ones, yeah. ways, just like psychedelics, of taking us out of our minds and breaking down our model and, and helping us see outside the model and say, is there a better model, Right. Is there a bigger model that goes inside of it? It's like it's like in that sort of like you know Russian doll metaphor. Is is what's outside? Is there a bigger one yeah. that we can look at that it's more all inclusive? But then the question comes like, how deep do you want to go? Well, yes, yeah, yeah, and that's, exactly. And that's, yeah, and that's really the th and that's, and I think that gets into like you know maybe Joseph Campbell hero's journey. Like, mm -hmm. how much of a hero do you want to be in this in in this incarnation? Right. You know, how far yeah. do you want to go into the cave? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's there's a sacrifice to you know to, to everything too. It's yeah. not. It's not just when well, that's what we were kind of, you know, alluded to earlier in the conversation about, you know, these enhanced states of mind being both dangerous and opportunistic, right? Mm. Meaning like it's risk and opportunity because make no mistake about it, right? If you, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you know, whatever metaphor that you would use for your, 
for your portal that you would choose to walk into. Like this idea of like portals, Eric Weinstein talks about, right? It's like where it's like, you know, in like in every hero's journey, every character archetype, right? They're living in some sort of a mundane, limited model existence. And whether it be Alice in the Rabbit Hole, Aladdin in the Lamp, or whether it be Neo in the Red Pill, right? There's a point in which they reach a juncture where they're able to jump down a portal that breaks down that model and exposes them to a larger model. But make no mistake, that comes with significant consequences and significant challenges, right? That red pill, like when Morpheus offers the red pill, he says, like, look, you, you can take the blue pill and you're going to feel good. You can eat the steak or whatever. You, have all, you can wake up in your bed, believe whatever you want to, right? And that's comfortable. And anytime you break down a model, it's going to come with consequences, right? You're going to have to break down a lot of your comforts that have built your existence and your reality, whether it be your relationships in your life, whether it be your career, your job, the things that you're engaged in or involved in. And so it's, it's always, that's why it's a personal decision to engage in altered states because it all depends on from a very deep fundamental level what you believe. You're, you're pushed, drawn, led, you know, from the highest level of whatever comprises the extension of this incarnation or, you know, however you see it, you know, is pushing you to do because it's going to be, the, the deeper you go, the harder it's going, there's going to be challenges, right? But and the more free you will be. 100%. 100%. If, if you don't. And there's if a you, price if, to freedom. If, if, if you survive, you in quotations. Correct. But, or, or if you allow you, this is getting a little out there, to, to die. Correct. Well, and it kind of goes back. There's, I think there's a reason why, you know, you know, voices like, say, like Jordan Peterson are being so, so well received. They're kind of giving a voice to, to, you know, you know, to some of these principles that, uh, that are sort of very old and sort of resonate with, uh, you know, a, a lot, a lot of people, right? Where whenever he talks about his, his recommendation, which is more based on kind of like a Jungian mindset sort of principle is like pursue meaning, right? Don't pursue happiness or don't pursue pleasure more, more specifically, yeah. like happiness being fulfillment and fulfillment coming through meaning and meaning uh, coming through the adoption of responsibility. And whenever you take that red pill, that's a responsibility. Whenever you go deep outside your reality, that's saying, what can I do to have a more all-encompassed viewpoint and take on the challenges to be able to create the opportunity to conduct myself in a way through which life improves for my existence and the existence of as many people as possible. That, that comes through being able to zoom out, but make no mistake about it, like it comes with consequences. That's like, I think there's a quote from maybe Viktor Frankl or someone like that, but they said something along the lines of, of those who perpetually, this is paraphrasing, those who perpetually, perpetually seek pleasure are typically lacking meaning. Right. So if you're in that, that, that hamster wheel of just like, what's the next pleasure? What's the next pleasure? What's the next pleasure? Yeah. You know, there's, 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 there's also, once again, like I, there's, there's other games. Yeah. In existence. Well, no, and, and it's whether it be any of those guys, like, you know, people like Jordan who talk about that, or I don't know if you've ever, you know, come across or met Gabor Mate or, yeah, you know, we've done the, two podcasts together. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah. No. So, like, you know, from his perspective, right, addiction is not a problem. It's your attempt to solve a problem, right? Or there's an innate disconnection from self yep. that you're trying to innately get back to, and which, which all addicts are traumatized, right? You know, not, not all people that are, are traumatized are addicts, but virtually all addicts, you know, have some level of trauma that's created that disconnection and led you to want to get back to that, not knowing how you, you, you chase the icing instead of the cake, which is like the, just the pleasure feeling, which would be a partial byproduct of meaning or taking on a real meaningful adventure. Yeah. And you end up in this negative feedback loop. It's just like, putting the cotton candy in your mouth and it just disappears in your mouth, you know, and then it's, you're left with nothing. And, 
you chase it harder and uh yeah, yeah. so um we'll, we will wrap this thing up but we need to touch on you were like a bona fide meth amphetamine addict of sorts not not meth in the meth meth sense but meth in the, in the pharmaceutical sense mm-hmm. and from what i garnered in listening to another conversation there was like like you were real deep oh yeah in that yeah and there was convulsions and illness mm-hmm. and your nervous system was running amok and the from my understanding the the exploration into finding kava probably among other things i would presume started to kind of shed some light and open you up out of that mm-hmm. can you share kind of a bit absolutely yeah that? so just you know kind of an encapsulated version of that that was one of the factors that led to the complete collapse of my health right obviously it started with belief systems it started with you know growing up not only in a part of the country but just uh you know under a mentality of outsourcing my responsibility and my health to an external sort of authority figure which was the allopathic system and just you know taking on the 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 collective habits or ways of interfacing with environment and food of just like the masses of people right so i ate like like shit, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was bad to my body. I was a, I was an endurance athlete early on, which was part of my compensatory process, which is part of my impulsivity sort of addiction loop before I got into drugs. I was always trying to do, engage in respectable addictions, but it was still working downstream, of sure. course, right? And so I was, I was an endurance athlete in, in college and, um, you know, an elite marathon runner and stuff like that and ended up, you know, crashing at one point because, Everything from my susceptible genetics to my toxic mold exposure in my apartment that I was in at that, that period of time to a lot of other toxic exposures, amalgam fillings, and a bunch of different things. It's a combination that makes people sick, combination that gets people well too. But I ended up just like totally crashed, thought I was overtraining, didn't really know anything else at the time, ended up in a psychiatrist's office, just put on a whole host of drugs that they said were miracle drugs that would get me back up quick, right? And of course they do but they charge on credit, right? Like we we said earlier. So, you know, if you take a burned out system, a metabolically burned out exhausted system and you put it on amphetamines, the next day, it's like putting jet fuel in a car engine that's that's about to blow anyways. Yeah, it'll get it going, Mm. but then it'll blow it out twice as fast and that's what happened. But not only was I kind of like the worst wiring or personality type to give amphetamines to, which like, so Adderall was the drug, which is... By all intents and purposes, it's a legalized, you know, synthetic pharmaceutical version of meth. Same mechanism, it's dextroamphetamine, uh, just, you know, lacking a methyl group. Just kind of a little bit different form, but make no mistake, it's, it's you know, I mean, Adderall is, is an incredibly dangerous drug. Even though some people find some level of what they consider to be an even kilter with it, you're always going to end up basically in a worse place than you started pretty much every time if you get on if you go on a multiple year amphetamine binge, right, it's going to affect either your perception, deplete your body, you know, so basically it depleted me really fast because I was already depleted, but I already kind of had um, an eccentric personality or someone that was, that teetered onto the impulsive and you put someone like that on amphetamines and uh, it put me into a state that was like basically an amphetamine induced psychosis wow. where, you know, thank goodness I didn't have the constitution to where I was like, doing things that were hurting other people, but I certainly did a lot of things that hurt myself. So I like went on crazy buying sprees and this story actually it's, there's some humorous parts to it just because of like where it took me, you know, like, especially cause I got out of it. But like I went on crazy buying sprees where like, I was like in college, I like bought a bunch of exotic animals. Like I started, <laughs> I started, I had this like apartment where I was like basically like tweaking on this stuff. And I was like 
buying and flipping electronics and equipment that I was like, you know, getting at special cost from a electronics company that I was working for and different things and had this sort of like amphetamine induced like system where I was making, you know, money for a dude that age and and had this apartment like Ace Ventura's apartment full of freaking exotic animals. Like I had monkeys. So like you become a slave. Yes, absolutely. And it was just it was an external manifestation of what's going on and it was chaos well you right? become an overt slave yes it's like ah like definitely a slave yes 100 percent. i was 100 percent a slave to this drug and it put me into this just delusional amphetamine induced state and the internal chaos was reflected literally very visually in my environment you walk into my apartment and you're like this is a combination of like hoarders freaking uh ace ventura and like breaking bad there's like drug addicts like sleeping on my floor everywhere i haven't even met you know the parties the people the drugs the this and that and before i was like a completely well put together at least still engaged in addictions but at that at that time not going any deeper but respectable ones like i was an endurance athlete i was i was not you know a drug addict by any i didn't even drink alcohol you know before this right yeah i mean i did some in college you know for periods of time but like not not a lot so anyways adderall i got on adderall to fix my problems, outsourcing my responsibility to the authority figure, the, the psychiatrist, which is like one of the least evidence-based forms of allopathic medicine. Where they just do c- totally on just symptom, you know, uh, symptom observation. No, no scan, no blood work, no brain, no like Amen clinics, like brain scan, anything like that. It's just like, hey, you have low energy. Here's 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 some amphetamines. It's like that's that's where we're at, really. Yeah. But at the time, you know, I didn't have that perspective. I'm going to take a moment and share something that I found to be invaluable for my own health, the health of my friends, family, and even the environment that is going through my home and replacing some of the toxic chemicals that exist within household products, such as, I'm not going to name any particular companies, but things you clean your windows with, things you clean your countertops with, detergents, um, also things like perfumes, things of the sort. The air inside of our homes can be up to 500 times more polluted than outdoor air. That is largely from us being doused in these chemicals from household products. It also includes things like flame retardants and things of the sort, aggregates and dust. Very important to keep your home clean and replace any toxic chemicals with some good stuff. And that's what we got with Branch Basics. I'm very excited to be teamed up with Branch Basics. They are an amazing company and they essentially replace those household products and they are fragrance-free plant and mineral based free of harmful preservatives biodegradable non-gmo either even gluten and tree nut free if that's relevant to you and they're also not tested on animals so you just get a handy dandy concentrate bottle and then from that you can create with different ratios various different cleaners throughout the house essentially replacing laundry detergent replacing um, any type of like window cleaners or all-purpose sprays and things of the sort i really love this stuff i think it is an amazing product and you guys are going to get a ton of value from it so all you gotta do is go to links.branchbasics.com slash line podcast and you'll get 15 percent off all starter kits so that is links.branchbasics.com slash line podcast spelled l-i-n-k-s period b-r-a-n-c-h B-A-S-I-C-S dot com slash Align Podcast. You get 15% off on all starter kits and uh, make your home a happier, healthier place to live. And when you got a brain scan, it was like so diminished that it was horrific. They were surprised that you were even able to. So long story short, it burned out my system. I ended up 
in a horrifically toxic situation. You can imagine the animals, the drugs, the this and the that. I, I had mold in this apartment and half of my animals died. Like I, I'd like, it's like, so it was like a disaster. Wow. I ended up in this neurotoxic nightmare that I was already about to fall apart metabolically before, but this decimated me. So the amphetamines and everything, and it was a perfect storm that led me to becoming basically like fully handicapped in my early 20s. Wow. So it, it decimated me to the point where, and you know, we couldn't explain it. It was like, I was this guy that was supposedly this super high functioning guy that was like this elite marathon guy that was working all these jobs and doing all these things. And all of a sudden, a crash, and I have this invisible illness that I go to my allopathic physician, and they're like, you're fine. And I'm like, I can't function. Like, I have these memory lapses that I look at people in my family, and I don't even fully remember who they are. Wow. Right? I, I can't even leave my house. I can't drive because I'm so cognitively, I had you know, chemical brain damage, basically, from these things, which was like, so I ended up going, I, and then I ended up in this autoimmune because this destroyed my gut, and I started having these weird allergies and reactions ended up with like multiple chemical sensitivity, which basically is like a, a severe manifestation of PTSD and of autoimmune disease where your body can't adapt to any stressor, even foods. So I started having like full-blown seizures from the foods that I was eating. This was like a couple of years into it after I lost my health. Wow. But it was just like my system was destroyed and then it just kept getting sicker because it kept getting more toxic. And then I had to like basically move back in with my parents. I like lost the ability to move around or to do virtually anything. And severe depression. My brain was so depleted, severe anxiety, severe, like to a level that's not even, it's like where I was like, I checked myself into a psych ward a couple times type of thing. And what brought, and, what brought Kava to this scenario? So that was a little bit later on. To, you know, so basically what happened in short was, was that I completely lost my health and couldn't function at any level, right? Literally couldn't even leave the house like at all. And that basically like I exhausted all the rest of the medications and I just basically had this, what, what actually got me off of the Adderall and even like, like, cause the Adderall and all that would have killed me. What got me off the Adderall and then realized that I was sick and basically having to move back in with my parents and stuff was actually an experience on psilocybin that I just came across because I was in an unhealthy world and someone gave me some mushrooms. Sure. <laughs> so I certainly didn't intend you know, to get something positive and powerful or even know that that was a thing. And within five hours, my entire perception my, of myself, my relationships, the trajectory, the perceptual timeline of my entire life started bubbling up in my, from my unconscious to my conscious. And I sort of saw the big picture and I learned more about myself in five hours than I had learned in 20 years prior to that, you know? So I think that's what same thing that Timothy Leary said. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I draw from whenever I, cause I've, His I've quote I, is I think like, I learned more beside that pull mm -hmm. in five hours that I did in like 20 odd years of psychology training or whatever. hundred percent. No yeah. form of formal education experiences, anything. And I think that, I think that my, my mind, my body, my soul, whatever you want to say was so ready for it internally. And where, what the feeling was that whenever I took that dose of mushrooms, it just opened the floodgates for what I, because I was internally seeking it. That doesn't happen to everybody because some people aren't seeking it. I didn't know that I was seeking it, but I was desperate and I was at my lowest point and I'm like, I totally surrendered to it. I'm like, I got nothing to lose. Like once yeah. I started, it came on and then that just changed the trajectory. I dove into that and had lots of other psychedelic experiences, but then I realized that what had happened, what I had done I immediately like went cold turkey off the Adderall, which brought me into a horrendous withdrawal process. I literally just chunked my Adderall like very, very uh, abruptly, you know, which probably wasn't the smartest way to do it. But I, I saw what it was doing to me, my perception in that experience. And, you know, so I did that. But then I was like, okay, my physical health is completely destroyed. But at least I had a perspective. At least I had a mindset. At least I had 
a new perspective on myself and on life to where I had a trajectory. I knew what I wanted and I, I had, I didn't know all of the, the details by any means, but I at least had an instilled sense of a trajectory of like that reintegr that nature reintegration thing that was like, okay, I kind of like, I don't know exactly what the step, but then I had a, I had a reference point to work from that then like I had everything taken away from me. I was just basically like reduced to being in my house doing nothing, but, but just scouring the internet, medical and scientific literature all day, every day to, to try to fill in those gaps, starting from biology 101, what creates health? What is the human body? What is synthetic pharmacology? What the hell happened to me? Right? Yeah. And then I just went on, dove into the entire world of functional medicine and for years and just slowly tried a bunch of individual things that didn't work and then slowly got integrated with the right people that helped me piece together a system of things that got me out of it. And, you know, it sort of awoken that sense of the sacred, right? Of like this, the, you know, the sacred nature of life, that, that nature reintegration feeling. It woke up a lot of those sensitivity. We, we talked about it in the beginning how I was basically just cut off, you know, of, of just living in this mundane existence, jumped down the portal unknowingly, unwantingly, and, I, and uh, all of a sudden I had senses that I always had and realized that were there, but just the boundaries had been dissolved both by the the humility of having the shit kicked out of me of kick, of you know kicking the shit out of myself right and being at a low where i had all distractions taken away from me so it was kind of like a thing it was a perfect thing of like i had the the psilocybin as an amplifier that just burst through but i also was in a place in which i had just been broken down at complete rock bottom i didn't there was nowhere for me to escape anymore i had no even means of like taking drugs to escape because my body couldn't even tolerate doing that right but, but I also, I wouldn't have at that point because of the perspective that I had. So I spent just years just delving in, just becoming an absolute, just glutton for information of understanding that principle of knowledge is power, investing in a, in a deeper understanding and understanding that like the more that I can know, the more that I can possibly work against the, the burden of suffering in my own life and ultimately other people's lives around me was where it led to, right? It started with desperation and then evolved into inspiration, right? Which is, which is you know, most people's trajectory. Desperation is something that, that is a force thing, right? You know, it's like I'm dying, a loved one is dying. It's, it's go time, right? Like I've, I'm, I'm forced into it. That's, that's one way to grow. And you have to motivate yourself with desperation. The good thing is once it evolves into inspiration, you've aligned yourself, you've, you've, you've reconnected with a part of your existential core that aligns with the baseline of reality, that collective intelligence, whatever you want to call it that's outside yourself, God, universe, whatever you want to call it, um, higher purpose, whatever, and you've aligned yourself with and found a higher purpose that's outside yourself. So now you don't even have to push yourself all the time. Mm. Something's pulling you, right? And you know, whenever you're in that place, it just opens you up to a whole new level of opportunity and synchronicity. You're open to it. But then you also just ha set that intention. You have kind of a feeling for when you're you're in line with that higher purpose. It's not you. It's 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 like you're in line with. It's it, it it's almost like you've 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 reconnected to source, and it's sort of like working through you. That's the feeling, anyways, right? Sure. You know. And so so like I just was on that trajectory, and years into it, but it it still took years. I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker because I was trying these different things, but I was trying to learn very very fast to save my own life. And so basically, I developed so bad that not only was I completely handicapped and able to move around and stuff, but I was having all these crazy reactions where I was having like 10 seizures a day. Jeez. That's where Kava came in, right? 
because I, I couldn't, I got to where I couldn't even eat a bite of food without going into a seizure because I was reacting to everything I was eating. I even got to a point where I was reacting to water, anything I put in my gut. Wow. So obviously I almost died from dehydration, you know, like kidney failure was what, where that would have led and everything. And so, and it, this was a long drawn out process of years and I, I had learned a lot, but I just hadn't found the right system and I couldn't tolerate any therapies or nutrients or anything. Wow. So like, but and I ended up on these heavy doses of benzos to control the seizures just so I could eat, you know? And that was a disaster. I knew where that led. I'd been on Adderall. It, it pained me to take a drug at that point of take a benzo because I had that. I was like, but I, I did it. Uh, and it got to a point where they lost their effectiveness and I was in some serious trouble. I was at a juncture where I was like near death. And so I was looking for any strategy to like transition off the benzos and reduce the convulsion so that I could just eat, you know, so I could get a leg up on this thing somehow. And I didn't think I was, I mean, I believe that I was going to make it, but on paper it, it didn't you know, no one would have said that I was going to, it was, it was, it was too overwhelming. But, but, um, so I, I, I was looking at any compound basically that could prop up, that could bind to the same receptors as benzos and could reduce, could it, get, reverse some of that convulsatory process. And of course I went the medical cannabis route that didn't, that wasn't the right direct pathway. It made things worse. I didn't tolerate. I was so sensitive. THC just made me, I did, it didn't agree with me. It didn't help. All the other herbs we named, the valerian roots and passion flowers, were kind of like, they were something, but, and they're fine for healthy people, but like, that was kind of like shooting a BB gun in a freight train, you know, it was, just wasn't enough. And I thought I had tried kava, right? And I came across, one relationship that I had, had developed was a guy who was from the South Pacific Islands. And I told him about this while I was in desperation, and he was like, he was like, uh, he was like, well, you know, have you tried kava? Have you tried these strains of kava? I'm like, yeah, I've tried kava, these capsules. He kind of was like, dude. <laughs> he's like no dude that's not kava at all like that's 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 a extracted form that's sort of like a kava like product but it's not kava right? that's where the the liver issues come from yes yes because whenever you so it's kind of like um when you denature something through using a solvent which basically a solvent dissolves certain constituents extracts certain things but if it doesn't ex extract the whole orchestra right we talked about earlier of, of instruments then they don't sync in harmony as a system anymore. And so they mm -hmm. can act out in your body and the body doesn't, uh, you know, it, use them in the same way. And that's basically some compounds you can extract with solvents and there's only, there's not as many constituents. So you get away with it. It's not problematic. Kava it is. Kava, it kills most of the effects and it can make it a little bit toxic because alcohol or other solvents actually concentrate the defense alkaloids that are in the wrong parts of the plant. So if you use the wrong parts of the plant, which a lot of people do, and then you extract it with solvents, you concentrate those. And a couple of pharmaceutical companies, one in particular did it in the early 2000s and created something that wasn't kava at all. It was a kava-like synthetic product or an extract product. Uh, and they gave it to alcoholics, a series of alcoholics that were also on doses of acetaminophen, a lot of them were. And they created a few cases of clinical, a good handful of cases of clinical liver toxicity with something that by definition was not kava at all. Kava has been consumed daily in traditional for 3,000 so years. So kava in the form that's in true kava and in the form that would be found in kava bars in Hawaii or Is food grade Fiji kava. It's, it's fully in its food grade form. It's, there, it's produced you know, traditionally. And there's no evidence or suggestion of any kind of issues around liver function Correct. with that. Correct. All of that, in fact, so... It was kind of funny because when that whole thing happened in the early 2000s with one pharmaceutical company, kava was about to hit a big boom, right? A big boom because it was this relevant thing and it was finally going to make its way out of the South Pacific. And that's why pharmaceutical companies were going after it. 
trying to create the isolate, the patentable drug, right? Just like pharmaceutical mm. companies do. And they were doing exactly that. And they created something that was dangerous. Just like cocaine to coca tea, right? Those, right. Are, to- those are totally different. Coca is one of my favorite s- s- plants on the right. planet. Coca, coca, coca itself. Coca is an amazing medicinal you know, you know, brew. It's 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 an amazing, you know, you know, you know, medicinal mixture. It's helpful for acclimatization. Yeah. It's helpful for just it's like a, it, it's like a subtle, uplifting kind of euphoric, energetic sensation. And cocaine is gentle, is like the like, the deviant. Cocaine is the white powdered isolate, the concentrate that can ruin your life over the weekend, right? In some cases, right? It's which, it's which a different you could, thing. Which you could suggest is actually a direct product of the criminalization of the coca plant. Correct. You could you could run that that argument, right? Because then suddenly, okay, if it's if it's illegal to move this stuff around, now it's not a sensible decision to move. You know, a thousand pounds of coca leaf mm-hmm. is worth not a lot. Yeah. You know, ten pounds of cocaine worth a lot. Yeah. You know, exactly. so now it's like, okay, well, since this is illegal to do, I'm gonna have to. We're gonna have to make some money in order to actually be moving this stuff around. So let's let's condense and reduce and reduce and, and it's, reduce. It's and it's honestly the same that. story with a lot of these plants, just like opium and synthetic opiates. Even though opium is not as safe as coca and it's not as safe as these adaptogenic plant medicines, it certainly is safer than oxycotton. It certainly is safer yeah. than dilated. It's certainly safer than just isolated morphine. Why are we not using opium preparations, at least in acute you know, you know, medicinal circumstances along with creative and other things that again are not tonic like kava. That's a whole nother discussion, but they certainly are a, a better option than your synthetic opiates. What does tonic mean? So, you know, tonic means that it can be taken regularly okay. um, without driving the body into serious imbalance, right? So like tonic herbs like ginseng, you can take it basically as a nutrient or a supplement. Kava's in that tonic category. Okay. Kratom is not, you know, Kratom is kind of like right outside of that where it's not going to just destroy your life in the same way that like Oxycontin would, but you can have some withdrawal from it. Like it's not, it's not like, uh, it's like without it. destroy its... your life mild. Right. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, like light. And even cannabis, right? You know, you know, diet, cannabis, diet Coke cannabis of... isn't even, isn't even that bad on the physiological, of course, but it can, it can knock you off your center. If, if you're too stoned all the time, it can knock you off your center, up, uproot you from your groundedness a little bit right depending on the person yeah when, when especially the super hybridized you know forms of it so it's something to be and of course psychedelics can do the same thing can can we because we, we, we're gonna wrap up soon could I, i'd love to finish up with any anything else in relation to like your story and and, and mm-hmm. origins all that uh, but also i want to make sure that we tap into some kind of like functional usages of Kava. Yeah, all the practical so the stuff, through, yeah. the stuff that we have. In, so in this conversation, I've never taken this much kava. Mm-hmm. The most kava I've ever done is like two or three cups or something like that, because I just assumed that that was kind of the appropriate oh, yeah. amount. It's very interesting. At this point, I've done drank four of the cans of mm-hmm. kava. I've drank four, I think, or maybe even five mm-hmm. of the the smaller concentrates, and I've done four tincture drops. Mm-hmm. That's an out like. An outstanding amount of kava mm-hmm. for for my perception of it. Mm-hmm. Probably, what's the what is the dosage for people? Like, good question. Yeah, yeah. So you know, right now we have. I'm and I'm doing this as an experiment, by yes. the way. I'm like seeing what are the outer mm-hmm. edges of like, what if I just keep on drinking kava? Where do I go? It's yeah. it's my nature yeah. to want to explore. Things, and it'll be interesting because I'll have to talk to you and see what your experiences with it afterwards and stuff. Yeah. But generally, even the amount of of these products, you you should it it it. It should be very smooth, you know. Still, I mean, uh, I if you had some sensitivity, yeah. Yeah. So, so, and and that's something that's 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 not always the case, even with traditional kava, because of 
even if you get good, you know, generally good kava, there still is a reality of like the way that it's produced still has a lot of the plant exterior sediment and stuff in it that can just cause some stomach upset if you drink a lot, a lot of it. Yeah. And we've gotten past that via our filtration methods that we've developed of basically separating the goodies from the stuff that's upsetting to the stomach, the stuff that's not active in the body, that's more just fibrous scaffolding material mm. and kept all of, the, all of the essentials in there and, but still produced it you know, totally traditionally and just through our filtration process of just sort of dialed it in to where it's something that's very palatable to actually taste good because those are the two deterrents of traditional kava. The bad thing is, is if you don't get traditional kava, you get the extracts, you don't get the effects. So if you just go and get some capsules, in most cases, you'll just get like a mild sedative effect like chamomile tea because yep. it cuts out most of it with that extraction method and sometimes they can be dangerous. It's even rare with those that they are. You have to really screw up like this pharmaceutical company did. But, and then if you get traditional kava, like at a kava bar, which is in the United States is really the only place that you're going to find it. And there's few of those, they still prepare it with all the sediment in it. And so there's the preparation, which you don't have to do unless you order the stuff yourself. And if you do, it's really messy and takes a long time and you have to prepare it right there. Mm. It takes like the whole process takes like 30, 45 minutes and people are not going to do that every day. Yeah. So having a shelf stable version of it is important. And then the other deterrent is the taste, right? Is to get a very peppery taste in a traditional form. I like the taste. Of 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 just like all of it, all the yes, forms. okay, I like, yes, I like and I do too. I like, honestly, I, like I the straight root. I've chewed on the yes. root in, when I so, lived in Hawaii. I would just get kava root in a bag and I just chew on the stuff. Right. So so I'm the same way. So like, like us, the numbing sensation. I feel like I'm doing something. Yeah. I'm all chill. Yeah. So for us that that are really kind of especially kind of connoisseurs of just plant medicines and some of these different and like that sort of raw nature of things. Yes, but for sort of the average person today. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have a huge aversion to the taste because it's just it's yeah. it's it looks in the kava bar it looks kind of like peppery mud right but it's good stuff I like it yeah. uh, but so 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 we've really tried to get it to a palatable very palatable like a carbonated beverage is one of our products that we have coming up carbonated beverage actually isn't released on the website yet that's the one we're going retail with it'll be on the website next month cool it's gonna crush yeah the yeah yeah the if carbonated beverage if is this the big one. stuff was sold at whole foods i think it's it'll it, it's i mean it's so palatable delicious and it immediately has a like a a state change that's mm -hmm. unlike anything else yeah it's very exciting and in a very positive thing i i think you know just because i you know like i said before we kind of you know started off talking about where kava falls and sort of the the spectrum of of psychoactivity and the things and and a lot of the, from an anthropological standpoint, a lot of the highest aspirations and values of any given culture have been largely contributed to by the psychoactive states of mind or substances that they choose to integrate into their culture. And that's no small thing. We talked about coffee earlier, how it shaped it, how ayahuasca shaped the Amazon. And it's not, that's no small thing. Like that's one of the biggest contributions, in fact, because psychoactive states, altered states, shape our social structure, which is how we connect with each other. Yeah. And the quality of those states dictates the quality of our perceptions and relationships. Yeah. Okay, so so there are certain substances like alcohol that are have their place, and they have their place. We talked about this some before. We won't get into that because there's a whole discussion on that. It's just like, you know, there's places for alcohol for sure, but in large dosages, as a, especially in the, so the Budweiser form that's like void of any nutrition or any medicine, basically, it's a very double-edged sword, and in high dosages, it certainly is suppressive to consciousness, right? Yep. Meaning that it puts you into more of the primitive state. You know, kava has the social lubricating effects, but yet it, you maintain your sobriety and you feel like more of yourself instead of like less of yourself. So it brings out the human side, induces empathy, and creates a very positive state of mind. So collectively, where we see, anywhere where we see kava used, it creates tighter-knit communities, 
sure. collectively, very positive social atmospheres, good relationships, and lower markers of, of you know, mental illness uh, just where it's part of their cultures. And that happens with, with uh, Kratom or Kratom or Kratom or however you want to say it as well, except there's more consequence, I think. Correct. It's, you just have to be careful about dosing and when. And uh, you know, Kratom is more of an acute medicine. You have to pulse. But when you drink Kratom, you get this euphoria. I just want to text everybody and tell them how much I yeah. love them. And I'm just like, man, like I just appreciate you so much. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the kind of the fall off mm-hmm. part where suddenly it's like, and, oh, and, I and that's why, so again, we talked about much. earlier how every one of these organisms is an organism and you, have, you form different relationships with different, with different organisms, right? Yeah. Just like people, right? Some people are healthy to be around all the time. Some right. people are healthy to be around sometimes. Right. Uh, and they have their limitations. Some people purge you a little bit, you know, of your energy. They kind of like suck the energy out of the yeah. room. And you, can, you can spend some time around them. That's kind of Kratom. Some <laughs> relationships veer towards codependency more than others. Correct, yeah. And that, I love that perspective on these, these things. Mm. But so, so Kava, to me, I don't know, and I'm not just, this is not a pitch, you know, or anything like that. I'm, this is why I got into it. I, I, you know, out of all of the medicines that I've used, the, the super strong ones, the more subtle ones, I can't say that I've come across any single medicine that has a greater therapeutic effect to drawback ratio hmm. because it offers that acute visceral feeling, that opportunity for safety, human connection, and combating stress, reducing limbic system activity, which is like an overexcitation of the emotional and stress system. But at the same time as being non-addictive, offering an exit strategy for the dangerous substances and just helping too. when you spend just, you know, think about it this way. It's it's the same thing with the um, when we talk about its potential impact on the culture. You know, microdosing psychedelics has become, you know, a popular thing for experimentation. It's kind of like a new phenomenon. Right. You know, as far as like trying to integrate it on a regular basis. But the idea behind that is getting just a hint, a whisper instead of a shout. Yeah. of the effects you can maintain your faculties, right? And we know that because there's that left-right hemisphere integration, that systems thinking, you spend time in that enhanced state and it helps your brain to rewire in a more complex, all-inclusive way that you become a more diverse, you know, have a more diverse, all-inclusive, you know, framework on reality and you become just, you, you develop more depth and more introspection and the, the, or the, the opportunity for that anyways, right? That's the idea with, with those generally, right? And people are taking them as heads of companies and in Silicon Valley and to improve the way that they can sort of like see the big picture, the way that they can get in that systems thinking mode. Yeah. And people are taking them emotionally too because um, so, but there are some legal issues with that still and even dosing and getting a hold of it. And, and sometimes people can't even tolerate that on a regular basis. There's tolerance issues because the tryptamines are more simple molecules that they kind of, if you've ever noticed, if you try to take psychedelics like psilocybin like multiple days in a row high dosages they have like half the effect they did the day before and anyone who's ever (laughs) gone balls to the wall at a music festival probably knows that or something you know but so that's a thing and some people experience that with microdosing where there's a tolerance issue does that happen with kava it it, because of the reverse tolerance issue it does not seem to happen to to, to most substantial so kava is one of those that continues to deliver but doesn't deplete at the same time very very unique so so again the best medicine isn't always the most powerful one. And again, I'd say better or worse. I just mean the best for certain circumstances. But, but it's, it's great in that sense. But what it also does, because it lowers emotional reactivity and it lowers stress hormones, it puts you in this reflective state in high dosages that you're able to reflect 
and kind of see your whole life on a timeline more, you, you know, more so. You have more access because that integration. So you're able to reflect on the circumstances of your life in conversation if you choose to engage and do the work that way from a place of more limbic safety. So you're able to actually form positive associations with the circumstances of your life and in many cases, past events. So again, it's like the whole thing with trauma. You can't change the past, but you can change how you relate to the past. And, you know, Kava just is, is one tool that's like, because that's the case, you form new neurological structures in your brain. And so part of the research is moving towards PTSD with Kava, right? As where it's like this subtle thing that people can tolerate regularly, but because you can do it so consistently, yeah. over time, we see people's mental health improve, which is the most exciting thing to me. Right? And, then, and then so a, a couple things I think would probably be pertinent or interesting would be, what are some stacks in quotations we can utilize? Say if, if a person wants energy fat burning, you know, but right. yet with that kind of like mellow adaptive clarity right. that, that you get from Kava would mm -hmm. be like stacking with caffeine be valuable with stacking yes. it with like what's where, where do we go? So the practical that? application. So remember, I guess the lowest hanging fruit for as far as the effects, the application anxiety relief, just as far as just a, a feeling level anxiety relief is, is the most you know famous thing. So mood relaxation, mental clarity. So anxiety relief, the you know, it has that uplifting effect, you know, for people, you know, prone towards that, you know, sort of, you know, depressive type of thing. But then also the nootropic effect too, without creating that sort of beta stimulation, which a lot of people are sensitive to today, you know, especially if they're sick or, you know, a lot of people are just like, you know, sensitive to caffeine. But it, it, can, it also stacks very well with coffee if you're not. They, they're, they're potentiators of each other. Caffeine potentiates the uptake of lactones into the brain. So like if you you know, submerge like the kava oil and coffee, you'll feel it even more immediately. And then fat facilitates? Certain well. fats do. Um, you know, you, you, you know, specifically MCT definitely okay. does, you know, the medium chain fats because it gets uptaken to the liver, basically acts as sort of like a raft that, 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 you know, you know, funnels the kava lactones across the gut and into the brain. So yeah, so like a bulletproof style coffee, right? The caffeine MCT, that, that whole phenomenon, that thing is cool. a very good practical application for like the kava oil Kava oil, I always recommend people start with because it's like you get 30 doses in a, in a tincture and you can take one to two to four droppers full or you can take more than that if you want to. But it's, it's in its food grade form. It's in its most like subtle forms. You can take it any time of the day, even kids. You know, we, we, we've used the oil a lot clinically for kids and especially in uh, lower dosages. And it's, you don't have to worry about it being like overly distracting or overly relaxing. This, the combination of strains is really balanced because strain is another thing. There's like... There's more daytime strains that are more on the dopamine side. There's more nighttime strains that are more on the sedative side. All of our products are meant to be more kind of like the social lubricating nootropic experience that's relaxing too. So that's geared towards that sort of balance of all of those things. But it's, it's good because like long story short on, on my story, basically I, I got traditional kava and was able to get off of benzos in a very short amount of time doing it, like two months, which is like wow. phenomenal. And then people, we see that with alcohol as well too. So those are like the lowest hanging fruit improvement of, of deep and REM sleep. That's another thing with alcohol and with cannabis. People use those recreationally. They knock you out, but they screw up your deep and REM and kava improves it, right? So that's wow. another thing, right? That's, that makes kava really good on that front. So from the nootropic standpoint, all the, so the it seems like it stuff. facilitates what you're doing. Yes. If yes. you're sleeping, it's like, cool, we, we can do that. If mm -hmm. you're awake, it's not like it's going to make you groggy, delirious out right. of it. Not in this, this form. There are certain strains that are sedating. They're more on that side, but this is very much not that. This like leads to a good sleep mm. because it supports that parasympathetic. 
So like if you take it during the afternoon, you get that nice sort of relaxed, focused, engaged, sort of socially engaged type of thing. And you're not like knocked out at all. You're actually right. engaged but relaxed. But then later on, you teeter into relaxation later on that night and sleep deeper generally, right? Oh, interesting. Which is great, you know, because then you get, uh, you can, it's sort of like the best of all. Because it's pumping up the parasympathetic nervous system's ability to adapt, yeah. you know, in a really powerful way. So it's just, it's so smooth in this form. We've had to develop a lot of methods to kind of get it into this really palatable, very smooth form. Um, it, you know, kava is already in a, a great form, but we've tried to basically package it in uh, in a form that really is going to take hold in the culture as a as a mass commodity. I I believe that eventually, my hope is that is that kava eventually will be as common as a cup of coffee, and I think that it'll I think that it has the potential to have a really positive net impact on. I doubt it'll trump but, coffee in this culture, but no, no, no. I, I, no I, yeah, but, I don't think but, it'll trump it. Yeah, I, I think that if it's if it's Let's say in the same realm of, you know, you know the same ballpark, I guess, of commonality. Meaning, like yeah. that, it'll be at least available, maybe as mu as much as like an average soda, right? right? You know what I mean? Or it's at least in people's consciousness as yes. a tool, as right. opposed to being like kava. Where you it's see like, it, like, oh, no, no, you, like that's yeah, we have that in the cabinet, right? Like like, like you see kombucha, you right? It. That that kind of level of 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 you know you know yeah. proliferation, yeah, right? Where it's available and people know about it as a a commodity that they can use. Cool. You know, well, thank so. you so much. I feel like truly, I've, I like I said, I've been drinking kava for probably 18 years, and I know more in this moment, like by far, than I've ever would fathom to understand about it and its benefits and just the neurochemical effects and beyond that. And just, I just really greatly appreciate uh, your journey to be able to provide all this wisdom with us now. So. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You, no, this has been great. This is a great, great conversation. And um, this is the best part. Yeah, and so people, I mean, I personally not an advertisement at all, but I think you know, incorporating kava into folks' lives, I think would would behoove folks. Your stuff is called True Kava, and um, yeah, I just appreciate you making time to do this. Yeah, um, it is where should people go from? Yes, here? yes, you just go to um, yeah, trukava.com. You know, so very simple there. The uh, the the price that we named it's you know the drinks will, will be available probably next month uh, oh. for people and hopefully in health food stores soon. And you know that the shot form that he was talking about is on there. It's the same as the drink, and then the oils and and then there's lots of information too. If you just want to dive deeper, all of my you know you know interviews and podcasts that I kind of have focused on different aspects of the conversation. You know, this we got a broad spectrum of of most everything, but some podcasts we dive deeper into certain aspects. So. Depending on how much you want to know, there's lots of content there, and I feel like this you know. was a we, we we did it. Yeah, this yeah. This covered, <laughs> we like we. Uh, what is there any other angles? Not that we're gonna go. We're we're, we're gonna wrap so. it no, up. No, 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 no. I think does this I feel think like we, a complete education. It, it, on, it does. This feels very well rounded. There are some podcasts where it's like we've just focused so deep on the mechanism, so we'll go like a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. But that's not near as well rounded. I, I think this was this is good. This I'm is, very grateful for all this. This is great. Yeah. yeah. This I'm is... a little high as well, which is fantastic. <laughs> I had more kava by far than I've ever experienced. And uh, I feel really good. Yeah. I feel like excited to go explore the day. Yeah. It, it should be very smooth. So, yeah. we'll <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's well, the way to do it. Well, um, are you on social media? Where should people just go yeah, to yeah, True yeah, Kava? I guess, well, you know, True Kava or Cameron George, you can go to, cool. you know, you can go to either one. It's, right, it's, it's at Kava Cam. We'll probably at, have uh, some Instagram. discount code or something. I'd imagine it's probably a line. I don't know how it'll be. Yeah, for sure. Utilized. 
Yeah. But we'll, we'll, figure, have one we'll on figure it, it yeah. out. <laughs> I'll, I'll mention all the things. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much for tuning in. And um, thank you so much as well for yeah, making awesome. time to do this, Cameron. I really for sure. It. Thanks, man. All right, that's it. That's all. Over now. Pow. Hope you guys dug that conversation. If you did, you can share it over at Instagram. Be likely place. You can tag me at Align Podcast. You could also tag True Kava. If you do want to try True Kava for yourself, Cameron was nice enough to drop us a discount code for 15% off. That is gettruekava.com slash discount slash align15. True Kava is spelled T are you Kava? That is it. And that is all. I hope you guys have an excellent week and we'll see you soon.